catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best kept secret and visit azstateparks.com slash amazing to start your springtime adventure. Recorded live. Good morning to one and all. We have made it this far into the evaluation process where we've had a chance to go through sort of the regular season of evaluation where you watch, obviously, everyone play football, actual 11-on-11 pads, helmets, the whole deal. And then we moved into essentially the post-evaluation season. You're still evaluating, but you're watching them in somewhat different situations, all-star games, all-star game practices, you know, culminating in the playoffs in terms of evaluation season, which is when you enter into, obviously, get to the senior bowl, combines, and now we're in pro days, which is the, you know, second to last portion of the playoffs, you know, heading to evaluation Super Bowl, which is the draft itself. And, of course, private visits are being taken, and I'm back with one of my favorite and longest-running people in the evaluation community. I've been talking to this person for about six, six and a half years, on and off, I guess. Uh, Eric Galco, the man behind Optimum Scouting. How are you doing, Eric? I'm doing well. Good morning. What's going on? Yes, it's uh, it's always a pleasure. It's uh, a very interesting time for those of us that spend hours in the dark watching and then re-watching and then re-re-watching prospects. Tell us a little bit about your approach, the approach that Optimum Scouting takes to the evaluation, and then tell us about what you guys have been up to. Yeah, well, I'm lucky to have, um, you know, a great group of guys to work with every year. Um, I'm a little bit thankful to have guys leave for bigger and better jobs, whether it's in the NFL, whether it's in college football, whether it's in the media. I'm thankful to have work with people um, like that every year, but this year we've got another great staff, and um, this year we kind of took the same approach we usually do, and, and I play the director of scouting role, and everyone kind of has their respective regions and positions, and, and uh, it's a lot of cross-checking is a big thing I'm a proponent of, and, and playing devil's advocate for our guys as well as evaluating on my own. And then this year for our draft guide, um, we took on a more analytic approach and kind of four unique analytic studies um, that hopefully can kind of be fuel the fire for kind of the evolving draft process we're all going through. I know a lot of people are doing a lot of analytic studies, and we want to get on board with that and be kind of one of the uh, – one of the future future scouting departments, I guess the only scouting department to really do that kind of stuff uh, on the internet, and as well as consulting for for pro teams, other sport professionals. So it's it's a busy year for us, and we try to do as much evolution as we can every year as NFL teams do the same. Yeah, that, it's interesting as football begins to play catch up. Quite frankly, for a, a lack of a better way to put it, in the analytics front, where baseball has been involved in varying levels of and degrees in analytics going back, well, really since the beginning of the sport, though, you know, on a very low level, but people began looking at players' numbers, you know, as early as pre-turn of the century, 1880-something, 1890-something, you could pick up little pamphlets that would talk about, you know, what this guy hits on, you know, 
against a certain pitcher. You could actually find that stuff out, though, usually at a fairly low level. But they began looking at that, at least looking at how this guy does against curveball, which has got a turn of the century, pre-turn of the century in some cases. And so as early as the 1920s, there were people within baseball evaluation community that at least had numbers and used them, though, once again, at a fairly low level. And then by the 1970s, there was at least one numbers guy, though he often wasn't listened to, on every single team in the in the majors. And then obviously everyone knows about Moneyball, thanks to the, the book and the movie, that you had at least one team that went heavily into analytics you know, almost 20 years ago was it, you know, Billy Bean and, and then his adherents and people sort of link Paul Podesta, you know, now we're talking about football again, who himself was a college football player, but was one of the guys, one of the numbers guys in Moneyball, his character, or the character sort of based on him played by Jonah Hill. They bear no resemblance to each other except both being, I guess, Jewish and wearing glasses. But nonetheless, he was a guy who was introduced to the way baseball used analytics. Now Paul DePodesta is now obviously part of sort of a three-man triumvirate uh, in Cleveland who are going to be, well, we'll see. I mean, we don't know exactly what they're going to do. This will be an interesting test case because no one's thus far attempted to go full muddy ball or, you know, we don't know how full they'll go, quite frankly, but no one's even tried it so far in football. Yeah, and I think the... The, the, the role of analytics in the NFL has been, I think, a little underappreciated. Um, you know, teams as far back as the last 15, 20 years have been doing, doing some teams heavy analytical studies in their background. I know, I know Joe Banner when he was at the Philadelphia Eagles and eventually with the Browns as well, but way back with the Eagles, you know, they were doing a lot of analytic stuff that we've only kind of discussed, I guess we'll call it the media, over the last few years, things like offensive line and arm length and, and things of that nature. Um, so analytics have been around for a long time. They haven't been as prevalent. I think it's just a testament to what football is compared to baseball, is that football is, is much more reliant on intuition, on teammate support, on small things working out and having a ripple effect of big plays down the road. The idea that some positions, you know, ideally have volatility like receiver or pass rusher, while other positions like off of the tackle and cornerback rely on, you know, relative safeness and consistency. So I think the fact that no like these positions are similar and what they require as well as kind of the reliance on teammates makes analytics hard. But that being said, I'm more curious. I think people I spoke with are also curious as well as far as not what the Browns value in players, but what they value in their roster evaluation. How do you compose a roster based off of trends, based off of what you believe is accurate, what the numbers dictate as far as where you draft a quarterback, how many quarterbacks do you take, uh, where do you value certain positions. Um, some teams have success with that, but really – Across the board, we don't know what the what the right way to build an NFL team is because there's so many ways that have had success recently. So that's what I'm most curious about with the Cleveland Browns, not how they value guys, how they'll use pro football-focused analytics or how they'll use you know, football outsider stuff or how they'll use somewhere in between. It's how they're going to value certain players on their roster based on position and need as opposed to the players themselves. Yeah, I'm, you know, sort of an elder statesman, as you know, Eric. So I remember talking to the football outsiders guys when they first, first started. I mean, really, it varied probably within the first couple of weeks of them starting. And I was, you know, I was new to analytics myself at that point. I'd been watching football since the early 1970s and been evaluating since the 80s. But, and I was aware of analytics. And there were a few teams, even then, that played around with it. And the term played around with is almost exactly what they did. They literally kind of played around with it. It was like they'd, they'd do an arm length study and then they would ignore it after they 
except they commissioned it or half ignore it. They would do a study about three tones and, you know, cornerbacks, and then they would take a guy who fell outside of their own, you know, guidelines that the analytics build them. You know, so teams would do these things, at least sort of half-heartedly, as far back as, I mean, the, the team that sort of people always point to is the, is the 70s uh, Dallas Cowboys were the first team to really delve into it, where they actually put money and time into it. And there were times when they would use it and times they would flat out ignore it. And people made fun of them because of the Rod Hill selection in 82. Sometime in the early 80s, they took an Eastern Kentucky um, corner named Rod Hill because he was physically perfect. I mean, sort of, in terms of the, what they look for in a corner. And it's funny his numbers in terms of length, strength, uh, height, weight, whatever, basically match what people now call the Seattle corner prototype. Rod Hill was something like 6'1 and 5'8 and 199 pounds, and he ran like a 4'48. I mean, he had long arms. I mean, he was, the, like I said, what people call the Seattle corner. Uh, he unfortunately wasn't a guy who had a tremendously high football IQ, and so he didn't make it. And so people made fun of him. Yeah, see, computer nerds, whatever. And uh, and then you sort of didn't hear about analytics again for a while. They didn't stop doing it. They just were quieter about it because, you know, people make fun of them. But it's interesting now, we know there are teams like the Patriots and other teams that have, especially at certain positions, are heavily invested in the youth analytics. So it'll be interesting to see. And now, we, you know, obviously we just talked about the Browns, who will be another great test case. And if they go from being this, you know, sort of historical punching bag, I mean, who's suffered more and more agonizingly than the Cleveland Browns fan base. I mean, it's hard to think of, I mean, you can bring up, you know, I guess in baseball, people like the Cubs, but it's a short list of fan bases that have as long and storied a history of just agony, for lack of a better way of putting it, than the Cleveland Browns, right? The team that used to be the Browns leaves a couple years later in the Super Bowl. I mean, it's just, you can point to anything, you know, the greatest player they ever had leaves to go to a movie and, he and Modell get in a fist fight, well, verbal fist fight, and quiz. I mean, they, there's so many things you can point to that Browns fans could. I mean, if you want to feel sorry for someone, feel sorry for a Browns fan, right? But now, this could be the beginning of something great, perhaps. Yeah, I think people are optimistic and people are curious um, with the Cleveland Browns. I think it, it stays there. People aren't betting that they're going to work, and it's betting it's going to end up you know, coming to fruition. But it, it's going to take a lot of discipline for the Browns and using analytics in the NFL. Like I said, it hasn't been unforeseen. Teams have done all the time. But in speaking with teams that run analytics a lot, it's difficult to kind of get the football people on board with it all the time. So that's the biggest challenge the Browns will have is kind of putting over, you know, winning over your own inhibitions to kind of sometimes get past film and focus on the numbers that you're going with as well as getting past people like Hugh Jackson who, to no fault of their own, are going to focus on football ability um, and kind of find the, the, the mesh point between those two. Yeah. Yeah, and it's fun. What's fun to me is to, and of course, it's part of it's just sort of reading tea leaves and things like that. Uh, I know, obviously, from Steve Belichick, you know, the father of Bill Belichick, that he had an interest, his father, Steve, had an interest in analytics, and though obviously they didn't really completely understand what they were doing in those days, he had an interest and he explored certain things within it, even, even going back to the Stone Ages, basically, of football evaluation. And obviously, you know, Bill Belichick was an earlier adherent, and his original, I mean, funny, we were talking about the Browns, his original Browns iteration, uh, they made a fair, once again, it was 
you know, stone knives and bear skins compared to what we're talking about now, but they made uses, especially when they put their special teams guys together. Belichick has a special teams background, obviously. If you look at how they put their special teams together in those, you know, early, that first sort of boy genius version of Bill Belichick where he has that staff of, you know, history. It's a historical staff, right? I mean, David, I mean, it's just, just Dimitriov, it just goes down, you know, just all, everybody. It's like a murderer's row of future coaches or GMs or directors of college scouting. I mean, there's head coaches. I mean, just that, it's a ludicrous staff. Ferentz, I mean, just, you go, it's just 20 guys, basically, uh, from that staff, from quality control guys to interns to assistant coaches who all went on to do great things. They made use of analytics there. Uh, once again, not at the extent. So let me ask you this. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, let me ask you this. Since we're in the projection business, that's what evaluators do, if we're evaluating forward, and let's just say the Browns go 9-7, and seven, right? Let's just throw it out there. Since they go 9-7, and seven, they, when you see a team that, is improved in basically all areas and in a better financial situation because that's where Sashi Brown sort of comes in. He's analytics, but he's analytics in a slightly different area, right? Harvard MBA analytics where he's looking at, but he said, where do we put our money? What does it make sense to put our money? Long-term, short-term, you know, and things like that. So if this team gets healthier, both football-wise and then financially, as you say, it's a copycat league. Do you think we'll see within a year or two a bunch of other sort of long-suffering or teams that haven't done well? The teams that are doing well probably won't change that much. But the teams that have suffered, you know, sort of been running into a blind alley, do you think we'll see three or four other teams bring in a, you know, chief strategy officer or something like that, a, a Paul DePodesta type, so that by the time you and I talk two years from now, there'll be maybe a quarter of the teams in the league trying to do something like that? Yeah, I, again, I think it gets back to, you know, a lot of NFL teams are already using analytics. And couple that with, you know, look at the top, what, six, seven, eight picks in this year's draft class. The Tennessee Titans have their franchise quarterback. The Chargers, the Cowboys, the Ravens, the 49ers, all looking back to get to the playoffs, not kind of rebuilding their team. So I think for the most part, you know, the cyclical nature of the NFL is going to keep happening. We're going to see teams that are usually playoff teams go in the top five, maybe outside of the Patriots, because they never end up there. But I think also we're going to keep in the cyclical nature of things. And I don't think there's really need to change anything drastic. And really the Browns are the only team with the Raiders kind of having figured stuff out that really need to do an overhaul. And, and maybe not the best team to be the test case scenario for using analytics and and making that kind of a full-bore approach. And, again, I, I also wonder, especially in talk with a lot of people who have dealt with the Browns and this offseason and, and moving forward, how much it will be, you know, as, as heavy influence of analytics as we think it's going to be. But I think that the, the Browns are going to be the test case because they need to be, and most teams don't need to be. So I think right now every NFL team is using some sort of analytics with the exception of maybe one or two they're kind of putting on the back burner. Many teams have a heavy influence on it in player evaluation. Again, more importantly, roster evaluation and, and using kind of the postseason stuff, like the combine analytics or the pro day stuff, and, and kind of determining what that means. But for the most part, I don't expect a huge revolution in teams doing this the way it happened in baseball. I think it's already happening now. If the Browns just end up working, which I don't think we'll see kind of what their grand plan is until 2017 offseason, and they kind of got a whole year to develop this. Right. And what happened in Oakland where, you know, it, despite the movie Moneyball, it took a full year for this kind of to be figured out before they started infiltrating all this stuff. 
think it will happen the same way in Cleveland. 2017 will be more an indictment of what their numbers say. But I think if it does work out by, let's say, 2020 and the Browns in the playoffs with a stacked roster, then I think teams may be more heavy to use it. But I think the Browns are really the only team in the NFL that need to make this brash move. And I think that's why they did it. And we'll see if it pays off on what it all means for what the numbers say. Yeah. And that, that's, that is the great thing is to see where this goes, how long it takes, how patient they'll be. I mean, that's, to, me, to me, that's maybe the biggest question, or the one that I have, is will they be willing to wait three years, four years, to see fruition of this? Unfortunately, yeah, the reason... Sure. Yeah. I mean, they haven't, they haven't proved it yet that they'll be patient. Exactly. And, you know, what's, what's, what if Hugh Jackson wants out? What if he says, this isn't working, we can win if we make this, this, this move? Who does the other choose? So I think in terms of... You know, their staff composition, I, I love Hugh Jackson as a coach. I think he's one of the – I think he probably was the top the top free agent um, coaching candidate this offseason. Mm-hmm. But I'm not sure he was the right fit in Cleveland because I think he's a guy who wants to have a lot of control. Back in Oakland, you know, he advocated for trading for Carson Palmer. Uh, yeah. That's a great – I mean, that would be a great move. At, and looking back on it, if he had more time in Oakland, maybe that move takes him to the playoffs at some point because they had kind of shown some promise when he was there. But – you know, he goes to Cleveland where they want to do this new approach, but then they put a guy like Hugh Jackson who wants a lot of power. The second things go wrong by 2017, unless there's a plan in place, because you're blown up faster. And I think it's the easy comparison to make, but it's reasonable. It's kind of the Philadelphia 76 of basketball. And look what yeah. they've done. They gave that guy three, four years, and granted, I think that was ended up being a mess. You know, they kind of eventually took it away. At some point, the patience wears thin with the ownership of the other management. I wonder how long they'll last in Cleveland because their history says it shouldn't last too long. Right, right. Yeah, they, they've been on a sort of build and destroy, you know, re- recreate sort of every two so or so years kind of plan the last 30 years, really. So hopefully this will be met with patience. That's my one hope. I mean, whether it succeeds or fails, I don't really have a dog in the fight, but I'd love to see them take enough time so that we as outsiders could figure out if they were at least on the right track. Uh, so selfishly, I guess I'd like to see them give it three years at least to see what what's happening. Yeah, I think I think they'll get the three years. I mean, I, I don't want to say anything they won't, but it's uh, it's difficult to say. And, and I think it's Sashi Brown's leadership to kind of keep saying, "Hey, this is going to work. Trust the process." And again, the the whole trust the process kind of sinks back to Philadelphia 76ers. But in football, I guess it could work out. And I think it's stronger this year is going to be important. Okay. So let me ask you a few more questions now. Like I said, we've known each other for a while. I've watched you from when you, I guess you early from early in your career, seeing what you've built and how you've built it. If you are called in by, let's just say the Philadelphia Eagles, right? Let's just say the Eagles give you guys a call and say, "Look, Austin Scouting, we need your help. We we've tried this a couple of different ways. Andy Reid, you know, has had a lot of success actually doing it his way. We tried it another way. We had you know mixed." You know, mixed level of success, I guess you would say, with what they did. And, and once again, speaking of analytics, we know that Chip Kelly is a guy that loves Spark. Like, he's Spark-centric. When he ran the show at Oregon, he always went after the guys with the best Spark, the DeAnthony Thomas. I mean, uh, all, he, just chock full of guys with great Spark numbers. Kyle Long, you know, when he got him out of junior college with another guy with terrific spark numbers. I think he had the best spark numbers of every of any junior college offensive lineman, I believe, the year that um, they got him. It's a mixed bag for Chip Kelly in the NFL. Let me ask you guys this. When you guys do what you do analytics-wise, work what you work analytics-wise, 
what things do you put stock in? Like some people, there was a whole controversy about hand size, and, you know, the hand size people said, but look, if you look, the history says if your hands are any smaller than this, you know, there's only one guy who's made it in the history of pussy pad hand size numbers who's ever made it has been below this threshold. And then the other people said, you know, who cares? <laughs> but again, uh, when you look at analytics, when your guys look at analytics, what stuff do you really care about? What things do you, because everybody, everyone has numbers, but some numbers mean different things to different people. I think the first thing I'll say is that I'm not naive to think that I know enough um, about this. I'm, I'm a football film guy. Um, I always have been. I trust in my eyes. And I've grown as a evaluator, I hope, based off of, you know, my misses and, and you know, where I kind of went wrong in those areas and, and taken notes and, and gone from there as opposed to looking at the numbers and what they say behind the scenes. Certainly the hand size thing. Certainly I think a lot of the measurables stand out. And, and the kind of longer I do this and, and more I talk to NFL personnel and people in the industry, the more I've kind of grown, I guess, cynical in that athleticism and measurables um, generally went out as, as the reason guys succeed or fail. So in that respect, I've, uh, I've grown accustomed to kind of really valuing not ways to quantify athleticism. Um, I think Justice Moskin does a fantastic job and, and certainly NFL teams agree with his force players and, uh, and kind of using the NFL combine data and other stuff to, uh, to evaluate athleticism. Because I think in the end, like I said, athleticism is, is what I've learned and speaking with teams, not only teams that are, you know, naive and short-minded, but teams that are smart and, and scouts that are young and, and appreciate that, hey, this is kind of a new way of what we're doing, but kind of the same idea that it causes them wins out. It proves over and over again. So I, I think that the combine analytics is something I've grown to be really appreciative of and kind of making all those numbers make sense in one way. You know, Chris Jones, the Mississippi State, the guy who on film, looks tremendously athletic. And I glance at his combine numbers, I'm like, oh, those are good, not great. Talk to Gus with Mosqueda, and he put the numbers together in a way that makes sense. He's got to compare across all drafts, and you see that, wow, he had a fantastic NFL combine for a guy his size. So I think that's really important to me. And I think the – and we're still growing a lot of what analytics we're doing next year, but what their class and data and scouting and kind of the quantifying quarterbacks, not to diminish what Charles McDonald did. He was a great study on blocking for pass blocking and run blocking for the top offensive linemen. Anthony Chiato kind of tracked how each guy uh, as pass rushers, how success, what move they did, what situation it was. And, and RFS on as well for the, the draft guide also did a combine analytics that kind of gave everyone a combine score um, across all positions, which was helpful. But I think Derek Klassen and kind of the depth he went to into tracking quarterbacks and where they threw the ball from and how they threw it and what the situation was and how the receiver would finish the catch. Um, those are things that are important as well because it's, it kind of goes between the on-film evaluation and the box score scouting um, in the middle there where it's, it's kind of using numbers but also kind of tracking how they had success. And quarterback especially, like Tom by analytics, is something that you want to test athletically. You want to know what athletic testing really is, but you, want to, you don't know the results when you just see the eye test. Same for quarterbacks. You can watch a guy four, five, six times, but unless you're charting in a way that's indicative of NFL success, which I think not a lot of people do, and, and Derek was so successful at it, that's what's important. Um, you know, at the end of the day, athleticism and consistent production wins out in the NFL. And, and numbers themselves don't show that, or necessarily size and, and measurables don't show that, but kind of using numbers and, and using analytics to kind of track that thing is what's so important. So I really got to advocate anyone to, to, who's listening to check out Derek Klassen's uh, quantifying quarterback series. The remarkable data that was involved, it's, it's my fault that it be shrunk so much for a draft guy, but you've got about – 30 columns, more columns for each quarterback's pass over six, seven, eight games. 
Um, and the data we kind of used to combine all that kind of showed that, hey, Vernon Adams of Oregon's a great quarterback. Some guys aren't great quarterbacks. That kind of stuff is hard to look at on film when you're watching it. And I watch quarterbacks each game probably three or four times in different ways, and, and I still wouldn't able to get the kind of thing that, that Derek got by the way he tracked it and quantified these quarterbacks. So, again, yeah. my roundabout answer is I think quarterback evaluation and combine evaluation are the two areas that I put most stock into because I think they've shown the best way to kind of utilize a difficult part of the process, combine and quarterback evaluation, and kind of quantify them in a, in a rational way. Well, it's funny you should mention that because I remember getting into – being a, I won't say attacked on all sides, but it seemed I had trouble finding people who loved uh, Derek Carr as much as I did when he was coming out from either side, from the just watch the tape guys or from the numbers guys. And I couldn't understand why more people didn't like Derek Carr coming out. He was my number one quarterback, and it wasn't even close uh, when he was coming out, partially because I'm old enough to have evaluated his brother and saw a lot of the same strengths, obviously, in, um, in Derek that I saw in David. And David was a guy that unfortunately – I think Ben Albright coined the term shaking QB syndrome. Uh, he was a guy who suffered, unfortunately, from that when Tony Baselli, of course, suffered that career-ending back injury, and now he lost a Hall of Fame left tackle. And no offense to Ephraim Salam and all the other guys who tried to play left tackle for, for young, well, not, not the young, he was young then, young Mr. Carr, the older Mr. Carr now, I guess, quarterback. Um, he unfortunately took really one of the great beatings in NFL history and never became the guy I think he could have become. And luckily, his younger brother, Derek, made much more healthy, uh, both physically and mentally healthy situation. I think he's becoming, I think he's going to become one of the better quarterbacks in the league soon if he isn't already there. Why do you think more people weren't excited about him coming out? It's the offense reason, right? Um, I mean, the offense didn't really allow him to show off all he can do. Um, I, I can't think of my head where we were on him. I believe he was our third quarterback um, that year um, behind Bridgewater and Bortles, but I think he had the same greatest Bortles for the most part. But, yeah, I think the offense is what stifled him a lot. And I think the same thing kind of stifles Paxton Lynch. That's kind of why I'm a big Paxton Lynch guy is because I also like Derek Carr and that, you know, their offense was a lot of short area stuff, a lot of pitch routes, a lot of screen passes, a lot of yards after catch-based priorities, um, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. We saw Derek Carr you know, do that at Florida State or uh, Fresno State and then, he gets to the Oakland Raiders, and it's kind of a, you know three yards downfield, but it's kind of a lot of the same routes he ran and utilized in, in Fresno State. And the offense kind of was able to be conducive to what he was good at. It came goes with Paxton Lynch in this year's class and being a guy who, you know, the offense limitations are a concern. I don't know if they're the concern that he's going to be a project in the NFL. Some of how people felt, you know, Derek Carr made a huge adjustment in the NFL. So I think Carr was mentally equipped for the NFL. I think his brother um, being in the league was was maybe a bit undersold of him as a prospect. You know, having the guy, the guy was sitting down at age fourteen spotting yeah. cat corner cap blitzes. He knew how to spot a corner cap blitz at fourteen, being at the sky's corner cap blitz at fourteen. Yeah, how do you I undersell think, that? <laughs> yeah, and I, I think that the blood, the bloodline dynamic of a football player sometimes gets overblown. I think it's gotten overblown to the point that people almost ignore at this point, and it's really a huge part of it. I mean, you. You know, being in the NFL, the biggest thing I would say, especially in this part of the process, is, you know, none of the guys entering this draft, maybe even Remy Tunsil, can start right away in the NFL and have success. None yep. of them could do that. They all need at least one offseason to kind of be adept at the NFL game. And, you know, that ability, and, and projecting these draft prospects, it's going to take two, three years, of course, before they kind of reach their peak. And the, the reason that's important is because you have to project these guys in terms of do they the one, know what it takes to be a pro? Can they handle it mentally? And quarterback especially, that's obviously a statement too. It's obviously quarterback important. But 
you know, we don't know what these guys do. With a guy like Pax Lynch, I like a lot because he's gotten better each point in his career. Um, and, and same for Derek Carr. He had a guy who got better his career and also has a brother who's kind of done it and has a huge influence on him as well. One of the guys like, you know, most notably Robert and Dice, who's been a star his whole, you know, childhood and, and middle-aged career and middle-aged in the football career, and now he's going to the NFL to be not a star anymore. So I think that's, that, that's not a huge part of why Derek Carr. So there's a lot of influence on him too, but not the, not the kind of influence you like. That's the other thing. His brother's been an influence, but not the kind of influence you like. Unfortunately, Denzel, who's a bright guy, has made some terrible decisions himself. Yeah, and I think I think getting back to Carr, um, you know, there's a lot of reasons that Carr was going to be successful. I think people kind of point to the ones that wouldn't. And, you know, I'm, I'm generally a bit of a quarterback optimist in a lot of ways. I think, uh, <laughs> I think something, we've, something we've learned, and I've learned especially, is that, you know, I don't throw around first-round grades of quarterbacks too often um, anymore because I think to be a first-round quarterback, you have to be a really clean prospect to give a player early on and then make your teammates better. Um, which few quarterbacks do. And looking back, I'm not sure Teddy Bridgewater was with a first-round grade. He got just enough for him to give us a first-round grade on our grading scale, but was kind of on that fringe. But the few guys deserve it. But that being said, I think second- and third-round quarterbacks are guys that have the potential to get there. I think a lot of quarterbacks do. Um, and I think I, I think Carr was one of those guys. Bortles was one of those guys. This year's class, Paxton Lynch, a fringe first-round guy, but I need that development. A lot of reasons to like a lot of these guys, but Carr especially was one that I, I was surprised as well that people kind of hate him as much as they did. And I think it's back to people love Johnny Manziel that year. I mean, that, that draft time was kind of like, you know, Johnny Manziel was like the Donald Trump of this presidential race and that people just kind of fall in love because of this, this, and that. And at the end of the day, you look at him, hey, it's Johnny Manziel. Um, these concerns are, are huge. And uh, I'm not to make a Donald Trump joke at all, but uh, are huge um, but it's for, for Manziel. <laughs> but accurate. Um let me just check. I think we might have been joined also by one of our other guests. Who just hopped on with us about a minute ago? Uh, that was me. This is Trigger Dennis. Oh, excellent. Hang on, hang on there, Mr. Dennis. Uh, this is good. This is, of course, Eric Galco of Optimum Scouting. If anybody has the good common sense to desire one of your scouting guides, what would they have to do to get one? Yeah, um, it's available for purchase on OptimumScouting.com. It's right front and center at the top of the homepage. Click the link to get your copy. Uh, on that sheet, it says everything that's included, which has 250-plus scouting reports, uh, big board, small school big board, the four analytics studies that kind of touched on upon here, uh, endorsed from former NFL executives, and a lot, lot more. Plus, you get a supplement the weekend before the draft as well. So a lot of good stuff on there. It's a top-off from scouting. It's $9.99. Just click the Buy Now button, and you get your copy for 24 hours. Excellent. Well, one, uh, I think it's one of the best things out there. I, I've read every single, I mean, I'm one of the few people in the world who probably has literally read every draft guide that's ever come out in the last 30 years. <laughs> From Our Lab to Pro, uh, Pro Football Weekly to Lindy's to Street and Smith. To, I mean, all of them. I'm a junkie. It's really kind of a problem. My wife gets mad at me this time of year. But I have I read them all. And I would put Optimum Scouting in the top three. And top three? The, in the top, wait, hold on, hold on. <laughs> Slow it out with, because you've just room to grow, with an arrow pointing in the up direction. You know what I'm saying? Like, you guys have got the arrows pointed up. You're not number one yet, in my mind, at least. But, I, but you're headed in the right direction. I think when we revisit this, you'll be moving up my rankings. If, I haven't seen this year. In, def, in defense of myself, I haven't looked at this year's yet, but I will. Well, I appreciate that. And, uh, and hopefully, you know, hopefully the goal is to kind of make it, not only thought-provoking and, and detailed, but also kind of everything a draft fan might need for the draft weekend. And our real major focus is 
you know, fans, our focus of the draft guide, to be honest, is for fans who aren't in the draft process all year long, who are kind of fans of NFL teams, fans of college teams looking to kind of get what they need for the draft process and hope when you get it as one of those fans, say, okay, this is all I need and then some, you know, let me do a little bit more and let me look at all the rest of it. Let me look at OpenTown.com. That's kind of our goal. You know, the draft, draft community, quote-unquote draft Twitter, um, is going to have their opinions already and get what they want to get. And, uh, and if they get out of the draft side, that's great. But I hope that our, our reports can be quick to read as well as thorough enough that they kind of pique the interest of all types of fans. That's what we're going for, and hopefully it's excessive year. And like, and like I said before, we've gotten some endorsements from NFL executives, and I'm thankful so far this year that um, you know, NFL teams and other people in the sports industry uh, have given some great feedback, which is a huge help and a huge plus to a lot of the work that myself, Derek Klassen, Arif Hassan, Charles McDonald, Anthony Chiato, Austin Bomber, Yuri Peterberg, uh, Mark Dodarian, I'm forgetting someone, Christian Page, and uh, probably someone else who helped on the, on the draft guide this year. It's been a huge help, and they were awesome staff this year. Yeah, well, you guys have put together a murderer's row, and, you know, obviously some of the guys that you've had in the past, you said, have gone on to do great things. Our mutual friend Alex Brown helped Houston put together its best recruiting class in yes, school sir. history. In school history, you know that's not too shabby for for what he for what the. I mean, you should put together something sort of like Belichick does with his tree. At some point, you should have something that shows you know the awesome tree, so you could kind of stand there and say, "Yep, that's one of my boys. Yep, that's one of my boys." You know, you that's can do cool. That. Well, hopefully, I can stay atop that tree. These guys are all passing me by pretty quickly. Uh, but, uh, but hopefully, hopefully we can all. I mean, it's 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 great community because we all kind of work together, and that's kind of the goal of Optimus Scouting is that hey, you work with us, you work hard, you put together a lot of stuff we do on and off the internet, um, and good things happen. And we've been lucky to have guys, like I said, leave for the NFL. You know, we've lost. You know, in the past nine months, we've lost. You know, Alex Brown, Mark Darren, NFL Network, NFL.com, three NFL teams. Um, you know, a lot of stuff going on. So it's great to see these guys develop. And it's hard to get in the sports industry. I know that. And uh, I'm lucky enough to kind of have opportunity to be kind of a figurehead as well as um, to have great hardworking people involved too. I remember when I first found Alex. He had his own little site called The 3-4. And I sort of encouraged him. I said, hey, you know, you're good at this. <laughs> you, know, you, you should keep – I think he was like 17 or something at the time. You guys are so young. All you got, to me at least, are so young. And I was like, you know, you got it. I mean, I've been around this thing for a while, and you got it, Alex. And I, I, I can't remember if I introduced you to him, or I don't know how you guys – I can't remember how you guys met, but I, can't, I think I might have recommended him to you or you to him. I can't remember now. But both of you guys have really impressed me with what you've done in your life. And just to see Optimum continue to grow and develop, I'm incredibly impressed. And I've seen you from your earliest beginnings, and, you know, clearly you have a great vision, and you have a really good eye for talent, as you just pointed out, because people want your guys. Yeah, I hope so. So I appreciate that so much. And, and Alex was, is a good friend to, all, to both of us and, and, and a great evaluator, too. So it's good to be friends with him. But uh, but I appreciate him coming on, man, and uh, talking about the draft guy, talking Browns, talking football in general. I appreciate him to kind of make my Sunday morning, Saturday morning a little easier. I appreciate him. We'll do it again probably before the draft sometime. That's cool. We will. We will. I will have a big old round table with Dane and Jeff Risden and Jeff Lloyd. I'm going to try to do this thing up big this year. So probably two weeks before the draft, probably – I don't know, either a week or two weeks before the draft, so it's really on people's schedules. I may do it on the Friday night show, the feeling of draft, and we'll have a giant rondelet, and, you know, we'll serve drinks. I don't know. But, uh, <laughs> it'll, it'll, <laughs> well, it sounds good. I appreciate it. Look forward to the invite then, and we'll, we'll talk again then, man. I appreciate it. A, a pleasure, as always. That was Eric Galco, uh, Director of Scouting for Austin Scouting, someone I've known for six and a half years, I believe. And it's been a pleasure watching him and his organization grow, and now – you know, some of the great things they've done. Speaking of growth, 
um, someone that I've had to, sort of some excitement in watching, and I guess his his NFL dream is still alive, though it's obviously been through some ups and downs. I have Mr. Thurgood Dennis on, one of the fastest football players in America with me today. How are you doing, Thurgood? Excellent. Thank you so much for having me on. It's always a great opportunity to uh, be able to talk about football, kind of talk about my career, and become more of a professional for my playing and coaching career, especially with so much and is involved with so much the uh, scouting side as well as you are. So thanks for having me. Certainly. So you obviously are a guy that many people think of as a track guy uh, because you've been a highly decorated track athlete, obviously. Uh, tell me about your paths to each sport. How did you first get involved in track and field? How did you first get involved with football? Well, football was my first love. When I was really, really little, probably around second grade or so, my mom and I were hiking through the park and I saw first padded Pop Warner practice, and I was like, Mom, what is this? What do they have? What's going on? This is amazing. I always wanted to play, but I was always a little bit too small. So football was always the thing I was pushing for. Then fast forward to high school, my freshman year, uh, the head coach of the football team was also the head coach of the track team, and he required a spring sport to keep guys in shape. And I tried tennis, horrible. I tried golf, made a bunch of divots. Um, I tried baseball. And I could catch the ball okay in the field, but I could not hit, and I was so scared to get hit by the ball. So finally, about two weeks into spring sports season, I wandered out to the track and uh, tried out, and things kind of worked out from there, and it became kind of a two-sport love for me. Well, you you picked correctly, because I don't think they'd be calling you, you know, Tiger Dennis if you if you'd kept playing golf. I don't think that would have worked out for you. Absolutely. Okay, great, great. Uh I heard of you sort of simultaneously for both things because I heard that obviously um, now I'm a Chicago land area my gut myself and I believe you are from the Chicago land area as well or where is it you actually are from? Um, I'm from Green Wisconsin. Oh, okay, got it. Mm-hmm. Got it. Okay. 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 Excellent, excellent. Uh, now is Montel with us as well? As well? Yeah, yeah, I'm here. Perfect. Uh, we had Eric on a second ago. I don't know if you caught the end of Eric. Eric yeah, yeah, I heard a, a good about about ten minutes or so of Eric. Yeah, um, great, great, great uh, interview, and uh, I identify with a lot of things he had to say, especially regarding the car, uh, you know, comments and all that. So, yeah, yeah, that was. I felt very lonely uh, when I was out there saying Derek Carr is the best quarterback in this draft. <laughs> Just listen, well, no yeah. one listened to me. <laughs> <laughs> it was. Uh, I think one point that he didn't raise was the fact that. I, People look at, like, Mountain West and, like, American like they do FCS conferences now. So no one's really interested in their football. You know, they're elite football players. And it just kind of seemed like because they're a but, but look at the defensive backs from that conference, from when he was in that conference. There's a bunch of those guys in the NFL. Kyle Will. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. No, I don't, I don't think that's just at all. Yeah, you're right. I'm just saying people look at David Carr and they say, well, his rival in that conference is David Fails, so they're like, hmm, you know, you know, like, but you, I'll give you really. Right, but, it, you, but you could literally take a nine-year-old mm-hmm. and have them watch David Fails and Derek Carr, and they'd say, oh, this guy's nothing like that guy. You know, oh, yeah, you're like, you immediately, yeah, yeah, you immediately know who's more physically gifted. Um, sorry, sir, good, sorry. We, I didn't want to go back down that rabbit hole, but I, I still, to this day, well, I will. There's certain things I'll never quite get over as a guy who's been all way too involved in evaluation for way too long. Certain things still continue to my my mind gets reblown when I think back on people 
not liking that guy coming out. Like, what, what do you want? Size, check. Football IQ, check. Arm, double check. Uh, you know, <laughs> character, triple check. What do you want? What do you a lot want? of times people get caught up in what school they went to. I mean, it's that nine-year-old yeah. who's got that innocence. They're just watching the film. They don't know who is which, you know. So that makes, <laughs> makes sense. Well, well put, Thurgood. Well put. Um, when, you're, when your football days are over, come over to the dark side, and we'll watch tape together. Oh, so, I can't wait. Tape's my- <laughs> so you're a guy that loves two sports. It sounds like football maybe a little bit more, or was it sort of equal? How did that work for you in your heart? Football more. I mean, I, I have come to love track, and I have come to love my teammates, but football is a different thing. It's just a – and you've got the bug. People that get the bug know it's it's almost a mission, you know. You just yeah. – 11 guys be – Executing perfectly for your play to work. One guy messes and the, the play's over. I just think that's that type of teamwork is just something you don't find in other sports. Well put. Well put. Uh, we just recently watched, I recently watched the wrestling was actually my best sport, but football was my love. It was one of those deals where it's like, you know, if only I could be good at this, but, you know, we get different <laughs> gifts. So I was a pretty good wrestler. I was a football player. Loves football, you know, and I, like you said, like you said, I grew to love wrestling because I've better at it and I you know I could see I could actually do this at the collegiate level and you know actually be decent at it while you know in football I was like a fifth string free safety so you know there's that but uh take me through your your high school year so you you said by the time you get to high school you're doing both sports you're doing both sports pretty darn well what positions were you playing originally when you started playing football third um when I started playing football it was in fourth grade pop warner and uh, I love fly around hit so I was middle linebacker and then what happened is everybody around both spurts and I stayed the same I was mm-hmm. five foot one, ninety eight pounds from like fifth grade through to freshman year of high school I was still that same basic height and weight I was tiny and so I ended up just moving back through the secondary up to the linebacker moved to outside backer then back to free safety and now I'm a corner and I, w- I would never trade corner for anything that's in my main years of growing as a player that's what I was to think of the field as a corner thinks of the field. Um, yeah. So in high school, my growth spurt came right after my sophomore year. So time when it kind of, when I would tell people I wanted to play college sports, they wouldn't make that face, you know, like uh, you should focus on your education, this stuff. They started to take me a little bit more serious uh, right after I had that growth spurt. And I kind of learned to, to lift weights and to kind of dedicate myself off the field as well at that time, which was huge in my personal growth. Okay. And tell me about some of the, the guys you played with and against. Uh, who were some of the, I mean, obviously, when people think about, you know, Wisconsin high school football, they think about the Watt brothers who, you know, the dynasty that they had coming out of Mequon. But yeah. who, were some of the guys, who were some of the guys you played with and against in your, your high school career? Um, I went to Notre Dame Academy in, uh, in Green Bay, and we were in the Fox River Classic Conference. I, I don't know if there were too many professionals in that conference, but guys that went to play in college, uh, David Island was a halfback on my team. Will Daniels is a safety and wide receiver who went to Preble, and he is uh, playing for NIU now, the Huskies. Mm-hmm. And uh, I believe he's looking to start next season, which will be his redshirt season. So that's pretty cool. Caleb Wendricks from Bayport went on to play for Minnesota State. Um, three of my own in college were uh, Joe Rotherham. He went on to snap for Nebraska for two seasons. And then when they had a big coaching change, 
Uh, he realized he probably wasn't going to play that much. He now plays for St. Norbert College. Oh. Kevin Metz plays for St. Thomas. He finished up his senior year. And then you'll probably know this name, Peter Mortel. Um, he mm-hmm. went to Green Bay. He's now the punter for Minnesota. Just graduated. Uh, when we played, I was one side corner. I was the played to the field, and he played to the boundary. And he was a receiver and our backup quarterback, and he was a punter. And all the top three biggest punts I've ever and he's he's going to be involved in probably, maybe not the draft process, but be picked up by a team here pretty quickly. I think he self-anointed as the holder of the year. So Peter Mortel is probably the guy that comes to mind most as the most well-known guy I played with. I like it. Holder, I'm about to break down some holder tape tonight so I can see if he is indeed the holder of the year. Yeah, he's got a great catch, a great placement, gets the lace holding. He's three for three. Well, you know, the Vikings could use an upgraded holder from what I've seen uh, from what happened to them late last season. Oh. <laughs> yeah, those, Sorry. those Vikings, man. It's it's weird living in Eau Claire. It's a boundary, Packer country and Viking country, and the Vikings fans are – they're a little bit delusional, but they are tough. They put up with, geez, just some situations that as Packer fans – you know, we've only had to deal with not really knowing who our quarterback's going to be once in the past, what, 20 years? And then 20 for plus. Season, <laughs> Close closer to 25. <laughs> yeah. But there's yeah. some tough fans. It's a tough fan base there for those Vikings, I tell you. Yeah, well, I mean, as a kid, as a little kid, um, I grew up on the East Coast. In fact, I'm back in Virginia right now, busy. But I grew up on the East Coast, and the NFL was different. There weren't many teams back in my day. I'm old. Uh, so the no only, Texans. Oh, there was no Texans. There was no right. The only team in the, the only teams in the South in those days because I rem, I'm pre Tampa Bay. I remember when okay. Tampa Bay came. I remember when Tampa Bay came to the league. That's how old I am. So when I first became a fan, yeah, believe it or not, when I first became a fan, um, they had very weird geography. I'll put it that way in the NFL. So Dallas was in the East, but really? on the AFC, but yeah. Right, Dallas was in the east, but on the AFC side, believe it or not, Baltimore was in the west. Oh. How does that work? How does that yeah. work, right? So <laughs> that's how far back I, I go. And then they redistricted. They redrew up. Uh, a couple years later, they changed everything. So And then they changed it again after that. So at the time, when I first became a fan, 71, 72, there were fewer, many fewer teams. So... Washington was sort of, like, imposed on you. That wasn't even a thing I got to choose. So I had to root for them. Uh, yeah, just then, by, by sheer demographics, you got to be cheerful. Oh, I had to. And remember, the South at that time, I mean, Atlanta was holding it down, basically, for the South, which you got below Virginia. That was it. There was no Carolina. There was no Tampa Bay. Wow. Uh, Miami. There was Miami at the time, I guess. But Miami was so far south that, you know, very few people, like, you had to – that was almost Cuba. So the um, – the other teams that sort of appealed to me, I, I got to pick some of the other teams, right? So you have one that's sort of imposed on you, and then I had to pick a team in the AFC, a team in the AFC. Um, completely by accident, I became a Steelers fan. Not by accident, but on my birthday, on my birthday, um, my fifth birthday, which would be September 17th, 1972, I'm sitting there watching a football game. And it's um, the Raiders, and it's uh, the Steelers. And I knew, even as a five-year-old, okay, I'm going to root against the Raiders. Who's this other team? Um, so I ended up becoming a Steelers fan that day. And it was a great game. Um, I think it went into 
I think it went down to the wire, and the underdog, you have to remember the Steelers were not a powerhouse yet. They were a couple of years away from being the Steelers that people remember. Um, they had a quarterback controversy that year. That was the year that Jefferson Street, Joe Gilliam, who was actually the starter that game, um, had beaten out Terry Bradshaw in the preseason. So I'm watching. So I have to remember, I'm also watching a little little black kid in, in North Carolina at the time watching a black quarterback, which was a big deal in 1971, 72. That's still kind uh, of a big deal today, but still, that's huge. Still kind of, right, still kind of a big deal, but it was, a, it was beyond a big deal then. There was, you know, basically one and a half starting quarterbacks who were black about this. Scratchy Harris was sort of involved, was being jerked in and out of the lineup in, in Los Angeles, and they were it. And both those guys were getting jerked in and out of the lineup, quite frankly. So, unfortunately, Jefferson Street Joe Gilliam got involved in drugs and sort of destroyed his NFL career, but he was so talented. When people ask me to think of a guy who was like Robert Griffin III, and though he wasn't quite as fast, but he was a mobile guy, that's the guy that came to mind, was Jefferson Street Joe Gilliam. Had an amazing arm, was a skinny guy, you know, very wispy build, built like a wide receiver, but could throw the ball a country mile. I mean, people know about Bradshaw's arm, and Bradshaw had a plus arm, but Jefferson Street Joe Gilliam's arm was ridiculous. It was senselessly strong. Um, so, yeah, so I watched this game, and I imprinted that very day on my fifth birthday as a Steelers fan. So that's how that happened. And then I don't know how I ended up choosing. Oh, I know. Um, I think it was the second game that came on was a Minnesota game. So there was only two games in those days, right? <laughs> there was no ESPN. There was no – it was a very different world. No <laughs> NFL Reds. For you to bounce yeah. around, just two games. No, no. You watched two games, and then you went out and played. That's what you did those days. You'd watch two games, you go play. Play, go play. Um, there was no night game in those days. So, you know, the only night game was Monday night football. I mean, night night, like dark night. Every other game was over by, like, dinner time in those days. You, you know, you get an early game, and the noon Eastern game, then you get the game after that. That was it. Go play. Um, but, yeah, so then I watched, the, and I watched, um, you know, basically, you know, it was the Fran Tarkin show. He, he, that guy was super entertaining. So I was like, okay, that's my other team. So now I had my team. Um, <laughs> that's how I so that's how it worked in those days. The one that was imposed upon me, and then the other two I chose. Those were my Absolutely. teams. Absolutely. Those Fran Tarkin teams, those outdoor Vikings, it's a tough squad. They were. The black and blue division, I guess, before it was, it was, it was that. that it was, yeah, it was, it was, it was bad timing because they, they were a great team, but look who else was great at the exact same time. Obviously, the Steelers, the Raiders. Yeah. Um, you had the, the, the Kansas City Chiefs were still great. They were at the tail end of their greatness, but they were still great. Um, and, of course, you had the, at this side, the, the Cowboys were still on the, on the upper. You know, so both the Steelers and Cowboys were young teams on the rise. And then you have the older teams who are hanging over from the shortly after the merger, like the Chiefs had one more Super Bowl than them. Um, and like I said, Green Bay had just finished their run. Uh, Green Bay had just stopped being great. Uh, Lombardi the dark days of the 80s. Oh. It was about to, right, it wasn't quite dark yet. The darkness hadn't <laughs> okay. quite come. Um, the darkness was coming, but it hadn't come yet. Um, Bart Starr had just retired, um, and then Lombardi was retired for one year, and then in actually 71, 72. He then comes to Washington, um, and then, unfortunately, cancer takes him down. And then so the next year they bring in George Allen, and they have, you know, the over-the-hill gang, and by 73, they're in the Super Bowl, and they lose to the perfect, you know, uh, Dolphins, the Dolphins that ran the table. 
Yep, that was <laughs> 72 Dolphins, of course. Those yeah. those skins had cellies. That would be illegal today. The celebrations where they'd all do the high five and stuff, they were oh, this is long, fun. Oh, you, this is, this is long before those guys, though. This is long before those guys. This is the Billy Kilmer, uh, Larry Brown, Charlie Taylor. Um, they had a great defense, old but great defense. Their defense had Chris Hamburger, who recently made the Hall of Fame, number 55, middle linebacker. Uh, Dyron Talbert, who probably should be in the Hall of Fame but isn't. Bill Brundage, the Dancing Bear, the original Dancing Bear. People talk about Dancing Bear. That was the first guy whose nickname was Dancing Bear. Uh, they had Coy Bacon, who is another guy who I think is finally about to make the Hall of Fame as a Veterans Committee guy, or should. He, he was an amazing defensive lineman. They got him from the Rams, where uh, George Allen had been before he came to Washington. He brought some of his old Rams with him. Uh, Maxie Vaughn was on that team. Uh, they had one of the great safeties of all time, Kenny Houston. Uh, Brig Owens, who is now a power agent, super agent, but that time was a defensive back for them. They have Mike Bass, who was their punter. Uh, Mark, young Mark Mosley, uh, <laughs> the last of the straight-ahead kick, straight kickers, was had just gotten to the team. I think he was a rookie. Uh, Mosley oh, nice. was a rookie. Uh, but he was. He was the only guy, I think, who was on both the over-the-hill gang of uh, George Allen and also played for Gibbs when Gibbs built the team that went to those Super Bowls with three different quarterbacks. That was the only carryover was uh, Mark Mosley, the place kicker. Gotcha. Um, let's see. Who else was on that? Um, and the, the backup was Sonny Jurgensen, who had been the starter at the beginning of the year. So this was Sonny Jurgensen's last year in the league, and by the time he was the backup to Kilmer. Um, but, yeah, that was a, a the, that was a great team of pieces that were almost all free agents. Um, he got Diamond Talbert from the Bills. Uh, no, Brundage from the Bills, sorry. Diamond Talbert from the uh, Cardinals. Coy Bacon from Los Angeles. I mean, uh, uh, Maxie Bonnet from Philadelphia. Like, the Over the Hill gang was called that because they were old. The team's average age is like 34. Oh, and, wow. uh, it was a, look, look it up sometime. Go on Pro Football uh, Reference and look at the average age of the starting roster of the 72 um, uh, Washington team, and you will see just old. Pretty much everywhere. Oh, Except, like, man. Pretty much Mark Mosley. Yeah, Mark Mosley and Larry Brown. whole draft and develop process. Not a oh, huge kind of a no, a very no, exact opposite. Guy. Exact opposite. In fact, yeah. George Allen. George Allen. They asked him about that. He said, "Well, here's why I don't like rookies because rookies make mistakes. I want them to make mistakes on somebody else's dime." Oh, I, I could see that. I could see how that's <laughs> system. So, so he likes to get guys after they've gotten all the mistakes out of their system. <laughs> uh, so yeah, that was that was the the over the hill game. Um, version of, of Washington that I first saw. Wow. But, yes, um, Thurgood, tell me a little bit about your recruitment process. Oh, my recruitment process. Kind of a fun time, and it was, um, I would imagine, much different uh, than a lot, of, uh, a lot of other guys. What had happened was I was such a bloomer physically that I didn't have teams coming to me at all or me Going two teams. My parents, my parents and I call that time in my life grand tour because we were touring all west, going to all sorts of different D3 and D2 schools, trying to find the right fit. Probably the besides Division three schools that recruit a lot of kids, and it's it kind of wasn't really directed just at Thurgood Dennis. It was kind of directed at a lot of kids in my area. So I guess I was by a lot of D3 schools, but the only school that really recruited me specifically was uh, Minnesota Duluth. And they were also oh. probably the best school to recruit me because they went on to win, I think, I think they had won a title in E2 the year before and went on to win one more. 
and were in the playoffs for a bunch of years there. And um, they were. I, I went to a camp between my junior and and uh, was recognized as the fastest camper there, and that's to kind of recruit me a little bit more heavily. But then about two weeks before signing day, they had a huge breakthrough and signed a four-star corner recruit from Florida. And I, I forget his name, no disrespect to him, because he was an amazing player. At the time, I was mad, but, you know, he's, he's a great dude. And uh, they, they, the coach that was called me back and said he wouldn't be able to offer me a scholarship. And I was like, well, that's okay. I'll still, I still want to go there and play ball. Then they called and said I was a red shirt. And then within the span of three days, they called again and said I was a gray shirt, which means I would not be involved with the team for my first year on campus, and I would turn my way back. And in my head, I thought, I kind of want to get started on developing now because I know athletic but not necessarily a great football player. So it kind of it kind of put UND out of my head. And I was just looking for a school that had good education. I wanted to become a football coach, and so I wanted to be um, an English teacher, so a good English department, and a football team and a track team that would allow me to do both. And it, it's you'd be surprised probably how few schools actually love their guys doing both. I think it's becoming more of a common thing with the different lifting programs and the fact that the movements for the Olympic lifts are so important for your, your heavy, like, powerlifting lifts in football because they keep they keep your whole chain, your whole kinetic chain in order. And so that's the big thing that helped me with track lifting, helped me a lot with explosiveness uh, in football. And I ended up at UW-Eau Claire uh, in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, that had the best combination of uh, attributes as a school for me. And I wanted to show NFL coaches, because I was thinking long-term at the time, that I could stick with the program, that I wasn't going to be one of these quote-unquote flaky kids that kind of bounces around like he can be a star. Looking back, perhaps I should transfer to a D1 school <laughs> Yeah. the world. I would not trade it for anything. I, I think I developed and got pretty far in my goals at Eau Claire, So. Okay. Well, first of all, I want to congratulate you on having having a logical way of going out. And so you're an English major. Is that what I'm to understand? Yeah. Hoping yeah. to become a high school football and track coach and Mr. Dennis in the classroom. Woo! Um, now I'm a former English major and, in fact, a former uh, chapter president of Sigma Tau Delta, the National English Honor Society. So always good to uh, to meet a former, uh, a, you know, another English major out there. See, there's a place in the world for English majors. So Awesome. Oh, <laughs> but if I can, people always say, do with that. And I'm like, you know, good speakers are, are you need those in active life. Even if I start off writing newspaper stories or something, I could find a job, I think. Okay. And tell me about the staff there. Like, who, who did you connect with and the staff? Who sort of, a, you know, became? Um, this is clear. Um, uh, the, the coaching that I played with, uh, I guess, quick backstory, career path as far as the team went. My freshman year three, my sophomore year five and five, my junior year two and eight, my senior year one and nine. So things got bad throughout my career there. And that coaching staff actually just this past semester was uh, their duties and they, they brought in a new staff. Um, but the, the guys that had on me were the head coach of that staff, Todd Glazer. And then the defensive coordinator, Mark Sippel, who is now at St. Cloud University. And then my corners coach, Dean Rosemeyer. And 
what those guys did is my coaches in eighth grade kind of taught me passion. My coaches in high school kind of pushed my stop sign. Like, they made me tough. They made it so that I'm not trying to quit at the end of hard workouts and so that I can look myself in the mirror and push through and, you know, leave no stone unturned and that kind of thing. But what my college coaches did was made me a true defender. They kind of taught me to see the just react to what's happening, but understand and try to anticipate what's happening. And also, since I had never really played offense during my formative football years, they taught me what offenses think about defenses and what they look for. And they taught me about my weaknesses as a defender and how to approach those things. So they honed me as a true football player rather than an athlete or a, they would call it Harry school. Like anyone can play football in like a high school way where you're just kind of reacting. You're in a zone coverage and you sprint back 20 yards and turn around and look for the ball. That's, that's not what's, that's not what real football players do, though. They, you have to. There's so many to the game that I learned from those three coaches, and I kind of became more of a football player as, rather than just a track guy, like you kind of said before. Uh, Montel, what questions might you have for uh, All-American track and a rising football prospect, Thurgood Dennis? Uh, sure. Uh, you talked about, you know, kind of like how you became a better player under one of your more recent coaches. Uh, tell me, in terms of preparation for games, what are some habits that you've gotten into doing? Oh, man. It's been really important for me. And the reason, when I was a and you know how a corner thinks. You think, I don't want to ever give up a pass, a completion. I want to do perfect all the time. And I would get so caught up on my mistakes. It was really bad. If I give up a pass in practice, I'd be pouting about it. I'd be walking around like emotional, just pissed off. And that's not how you want a corner to be. So one of my habits that my coaches kind of encouraged was sort of a meditation type of thing. So that a big, before games, before games, I developed kind of a habit of eating dinner, going to sleep at a reasonable hour. But then more importantly, on the day of games, I could kind of flush my whole I would put everything I was worried about from the week to the side, everything from class, everything, girls, problem that a college kid could have was just over. And I'd be kind of like, I would call it like an emotional action. And that's where I play the best, where your head except for just what's happening on the field. You can kind of hear your breathing. You can focus plays more. If you make a mistake, that mistake lives in the play and it's over. It doesn't come with you to the next play. So those habits were really, really big for me. That's play some effective football and I had to start game planning for me as an individual not just for our defense so I think that was one of the bigger things uh playbook type stuff was never really super difficult for me because I think I developed good study habits in high school and I considered playbook study not even to be a part of the sport I considered it like another three credit class so I studied plays as study academically and I think that made it so that I wasn't really confused on terminology but attitude of a player is what I've developed the most um, as far as habits go. And making when something bad happens, I'm taking those deep breaths and focusing on the next play. Okay, okay. Hello? And, uh, you know, no, I'm here. Uh, so tell me uh, more about the system you guys played in and, and how that, uh, you know, maybe affected your play or boosted it. Okay. The, I'm going to go ahead and it did not help me very being an individual playmaker, uh, as far as giving me no rules to play and telling me to do what I want, it was it was not 
that type of development, more so learning how to play a team defensive scheme. And you know, at a D3 school, a lot of times you can't recruit exactly who you want for every position. So they're putting together, you know, they've got a, a guys with a bunch of different attributes that might not necessarily fit together, and they have to come up with a defense that'll be somewhat effective. So a lot of times, by job, I was in like a deep third zone, covering half the field or something like that. So what I do is get better at making plays out of a defense. In high school, a lot of times, I would ignore, ah, coach don't like this when he hears it, I would ignore the call and be like, I'm going to go over here and tackle, like whatever the call like I, I'm talented enough to make a play, and that's definitely not the speed is so so much more, and the impact, like making tackles, sometimes in college and beyond. So I kind of worked on making plays from my assignment, and I think that helped a lot with understanding where offenses were going to go, and understanding what we can take, away, what we can afford to give up, understanding how sideline is my friends, and also understanding how call to the linebackers. We actually were given quite a few different things. We could buzz guys out to the flat. We could hang, get them more deep in coverage so that we could afford to play aggressive. And the biggest thing I learned was covering down behind the blitz. I struggled with that on junior year. Um, learning when the backer is gone and when to be really aggressive. Sometimes, even if you have like a deep half called, if you have a three-step route run in front of you, you're the guy that has to make the play. And I would get caught in between, and my coach would say, that's again talking about my film and that was something to learn of how to be aggressive even if the called play is like in a deep zone and so I we ran a couple different um, ideas my senior we were a 3-3-5 three, three, uh, with two rovers that kind of played all over. it would be down line times they'd be backers kind of like that stack jackbacker look uh, but first three years we ran kind of a stand Three four, sort of like what you would see on a playbook. Um, just your your standard zone uh, coverages. You could put everyone in. It wasn't super complex as compared to some bigger colleges, but uh, it taught me how to make plays from a concept. Okay. And you mentioned obviously that you're playing in a conference where I mean people always pick shots at guys who come from certain schools, but you have faced some pretty good players. Talk about the level of competition. Who are some of the better players you've played against and played with since you've been a collegiate? Uh, the best as far as physical skill guy I've ever played against is Jake Cooper from UW-Whitewater. Those yeah. matchups were games because a lot of us would, uh, um, like since I asked, coaches would sometimes put a bunch of like freshmen or sophomore receivers run a streak every play to, like, win and, and then run at my side. They, that would be kind of a tactic to deal with what I brought to the table. So talking trash to those guys and kind of play against those guys was way different than Kumro. With Kumro never, like, he was never in base because he was good. He didn't have to be. And with him, it was compliments. He'd say, oh, nice that ball down, and then he'd catch a pass, like, hey, nice, nice catch, Jake, and it was true. Just pure competition. <laughs> he beat me on a throw to the corner, and I believe the quarterback at the time was Matt Blanchard, who went out and played on the Packers practice squad, and he might still be there. I'm not actually sure. But they and threw, I, think, I think the Bears had him for a second, too, didn't they, Montel? 
Yeah, I think they did. Oh, I think oh, they yeah. did. Hey, yes, they did. I got to go to the Badgers Pro Day with those guys. So they were both really nice. On a particular play, he threw a back shoulder fade, and Pumro turned the wrong and made a one catch. I took his inside, caught it with his outside, and I tackled him, and he out. I did everything that was fine. I had never seen a throw or a catch like that before. And I was just, I mean, it was a touchdown I gave up, one of four that I gave up in my career. And, you know, I, I can't even be mad. Amazing throw, an amazing catch. Uh, so battles with Whitewater are always good because they will for sure have a good quarterback and they will for sure have one or maybe two excellent receivers that you don't get to match up with day in and The other game I there was pro aspect played Wheaton College my junior year, oh, and I yeah. don't remember the guy's name. I, I I didn't focus on him to remember his name for four years. I played them once. He was foot six, not super fast, but in his conference, he was the most dominant receiver, and he, the week before, had caught 19 passes for 200 yards, two scores or something, and Max Sims, the other corner, were able to lock him down, and he got, I think, three catches for 13 yards. They they beat us to Obviously, but uh, we we were able to him down. So that that felt good to shut down a six six guy because I was having to, I was jumping out, having to get up there and compete and try to get his hands separated from the football. So those those two guys especially. Uh, but then as far as guys who could still really catch up, every game against Platteville, their guys would make an insane catch. UW Platteville, they would, you know, I'd be punching them in the butt trying to like do everything I could to just separate the ball, and they, they would catch it. Had sticky fingers, so those three teams are the best opponents I played against. Okay, that makes sense. And you said that you usually were the. No, that was in high school where you usually were the field corner. Correct. How how have you been used in your current defense? I mean, do you move around? Do you always line up on the same side? Yeah, we do different things week by week, depending on things will be threatened. By. For the most part, I try to stick to field corner. Because it's, I'm, I'm pretty good in space, using space and figuring out how to use the hash advantage. But there have been weeks where uh, UW balls, for example, they're we got used to going 0 10 in our all the time. So they will try something on offense. And my seat, um, is I believe it's called a, a double wing, kind of a, mm-hmm. a toss, and then the quarterback blocks as well, body left and right type of plays. That all day. I was a first because of the width, the way that they would run with the width of the field. So that was abnormal. But most days I would try to be the, uh, the field corner, and every one I'd go and play press on the other team's best receiver if he was giving, you know, if he was giving us fits. And we'd run sort of. Uh, well, I mean, we we had a different name for it probably than than everybody else. But it was basically a combo where I would press man on him, and then we'd have help over the top with. And that usually would stem the flow, but during those times, we would be somewhat elsewhere because they would see that they could maybe split out a tight end with one of our one of our backers out there. So we tried to keep me at field corner as much as possible. Okay, got it. Uh, Montel, do you have any other questions for Thurgood Dennis? Uh, no, no, you guys can go ahead. Okay. So talk to me about the next level, whether it be CFL, NFL, indoor leagues, when did you first start to hear from, 
you know, from scouts, and what kind of things did they have to say, or what kind of questions did they have? Well, the thing that got me atten- the attention of scouts was uh, an article in my junior year about the fastest players in college football, and I was fortunate to make that list at number two at the time behind, I think it was Marvin Bracey, or one of the guys. It was either Marvin Bracey or, ah, what's his name? Or it might have been Devin Allen, maybe, but yes, I remember the article you talked is that you referred to you. That's what got me some of the notice. Uh, but then during my um, we had 6 a.m. practice, and uh, they were coming out, uh, we had three scouts, one guy from the Ravens who came for two days, um, a guy from the Patriots who came for a day, and a guy from the Bears who came for a day. And they all came out and kind of watched our practice. And myself and a guy named Isaiah Cage, uh, who's an old line just finished up his senior year. Um, and they came out and interviewed us. And uh, during senior year, I took the Wonderlick test. Um, I only finished 44 questions. And I 37. But I thought it was. I thought it was okay. I kind of kind of panicked and used my time. But that's when that's when teams kind of started to look at me for real and look at me as a football player and more than just just like a fast guy who also plays football. Um, my agent. Perla worked really, really hard for me and got me a spot at the Wisconsin Badgers Pro Day, which was for a couple of my events, I hit my reach, which are like stuff that you want to, like your, your best school that you want to get into, for example. So I hit my, my best times. But I was writing the average corners at the NFL Combine for, for the different That was a big thing for me because then were kind of, I was on key radars in a way. And what I think I should have done at I was taking my second semester off and gone and started to devote myself more to training for football. But being, you know, at UW-Eau Claire, we don't, we don't have players that go pro very often. So it, didn't really, it wasn't like a set template of what I should do when. So looking back, that's something I would change. But I decided to stick around and do my student teaching and run at Outdoor Nationals for track and field, which went right through May, so past the draft. And Outdoor Nats on day two, after the draft and um, dealing with the free agent process, he was uh, he was at anything. I, beggars choosers, a practice squad player, a tryout guy. I would have just pushed guys in camp and got cut. I would have been very happy with that. And that's what he's working towards. And on day two, I tore my left hamstring uh, right down by behind my knee. And I was at first in the 200 meter dash, the 100. We were supposed to win four by one and four by four, so that's forty potential points down the drain. We ended up taking second place, and on the plane ride from New York, which is where National John my called and said, "The Arizona Cardinals and Chicago Bears have invited you to be a tryout player for their training. This is a big deal. We finally got it." Plane and I say, "John, I tore my hand. Probably not going to happen this season." And I'm not, you know, I'm talking about, like, depression or if it's not, never really been something that crossed my mind. That first month walking around on crutches and really, I had cost my team not national and track my senior year, but also cost myself my dreams. That was a tough month, kind of re- trying to refocus. And I think there were a lot of good lessons I learned from that. But with that type of thing, some activity kind of crept into my mind about, you know, oh, poor me, less on the drain, but that part, that, that part of the path is over, back to, uh, back to where I was, 
focused really, really hard. And getting, I had relearned essentially torn hamstrings because I developed bad habits of limping the wrong way. And so I've, I'm almost all the way back to where I was about to start combine training tryout in Montreal CFL. And that decision is because I don't think it's, I don't think it's realistic of a goal to set play in the NFL after taking a year off of football and doing rehab. I just, knowing what I about the process fast and strong, I think I need, I want to play professional football. The CFL or possibly an indoor league would be my best bet to get some film down. But of course, you never give up on that NFL dream. Be realistic, be healthy, and get back to being an explosive playmaker. And from there, I mean, and after ruining my sports and stuff, and all moment of getting injured. You know, I'm I'm very thankful to be back to where I am and I'm ready to, you know, move forward with my process. Got it. And I'm, I think we've been joined by another one of our guests. Who else uh, hopped on with us from, like, maybe near Conta Oxen? Who, who else has hopped on with us from uh, the, maybe a little south of Philadelphia? Hello, Rasheed Johnson? Rasheed. Okay, excellent. Hey, okay, fantastic. Um, it's, I'm very pleased. I am a, I'm a fan. I've enjoyed, I'm still trying to get more tape, but I've enjoyed everything I've seen so far on tape. So Rashid, first of all, thank you for joining us. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Uh, Rashid, tell us where you are now and what you're working on. I'm from, uh, I'm from Millersville. Well, from, actually from the Town Bay, right by the by Philadelphia area. I go to yep. Millersville University, a division two school. And I'm just trying to prepare myself for the next level. I've been working out at local gyms in Northtown, like guys that I grew up with, like mentors and stuff, been training me. So I'm trying to get ready for the next level. Now, here's my question. Were you able to get into – I know you weren't able to get into Rutgers Pro Day. Now, what, what pro – I mean, were you able to get into somebody's Pro Day? Yeah, I didn't get into Rutgers Pro Day, but I actually went to Temple's Pro Day where they let you run uh, 240. They let you run uh, – non-Temple guys run 240s. You know, if a scout, like, pulled you to a side or something, you can maybe do, like, an extra drill. But they mostly, like, pull, like, offensive guys to the side. So I really only got to run a 40 there. And how did you do? I ran a 4.6, high 4.6. Okay. And uh, yeah. what was your official height and weight when they weighed in Mexico? My official height was uh, 5'11", 220. Yeah, 5'11", 220. Okay. So that's is that about where you wanted to be physically in terms of uh... – your height and weight, or well, obviously you uh, can't do much about your height, but was that where you uh, wanted to be in terms of weight? Are you trying to get bigger yeah, or smaller? Oh, uh, well, I kind of want to be around like two, two fifteen. Yeah, it's always been like this size. Like I really can't get smaller. I've, I've tried, but it's just like my body grew. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> That's fine. Um, and tell people a little bit how you got introduced to the game. Uh, when did you first start playing football? Well, growing up, uh, I played football a lot, actually. Like, I was actually a big football fan. I played quarterback and safety, like, doing pop one or middle school. When I got to high school, I just, I don't know, I just, like, stopped playing and started playing basketball. I just got fascinated with LeBron James. So I gave hmm. up the game of football. But towards my senior year, I was just standing outside watching a football practice one day. Like, man, I really miss it. I got to get back out there. So I went and talked to the coach. It was, like, a week before the, my first high school game, my senior year. And I talked to him, like, Coach, I really want to be a part of this. It's my last year. Can I be on the team? And he was like, I'm going to give you a chance. For the first game of the season, I stood up for the first game of the season. I didn't get in, like, the first two quarters. And as soon as he put me in, I think I got, like, a tackle for loss, a pick, the next play. And from that point on, I started the rest of the season. I ended up being, like, top five in the area in tackles, 
all league, all conference. Um, got invited to like high school all star game, so I just stuck with it after that. But I was really under the radar, so like a lot of schools. Well, yeah. Didn't take a, yeah. <laughs> right. Because yeah, you weren't playing. Yeah, I can understand yeah. how people wouldn't know about you. So yeah. because of that, what? How did your recruitment take shape? Because obviously everybody was finding you new as a senior. Yeah. Well, a lot of, a lot of schools was uh, contacting me about um like basketball, a lot of PSAC schools. And I wasn't, I thought I was going to go like Division One of basketball, but I didn't get the offers I thought I would get. So when like PSAC schools started contacting me in basketball, I really didn't want to pay, play Division Two basketball. So I started showing them my football tapes uh, and they started showing interest. Like, but Millersville really showed the most interest. So that's why, that's why I went. And probably the right choice because even if you, I mean, there's not too many five eleven, two hundred twenty pound LeBron James types in the NFL, so yeah. that that might have been a correct choice. Yeah. Uh, now, were you more as a player? Were you like a two guard, a small forward? What were you at? at were you playing point? Uh, for Northstone, I played mostly like it was. We had like a a five guard system, kind of sort of like Villanova. So I played <laughs> like a small forward, uh, point guard position. So I would play like the three. I would bring the ball up a lot of times. I would pull small guards up. We had, like, a nice little system we ran there. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so what was it about Millersville that made it stand out and made you decide to sign there instead of going someplace else? Uh, on my visit, it was just, like, a nice campus, and the coaches were really nice. Like, and they told me, like, you come in, you work your first year. You might you might not play your first year. I just want you to get bigger. Because I had, like, a basketball body, so I really wasn't – lifting major weights, like, and I really didn't know the game too well. I knew the game, but not, like, all the ins and outs of it. So it just really treated me like – it treated me like a, like, say, a, a dad treating a son. Like, I just came there on a visit, and the, the gymnasium was nice, so I just stuck with it. I was like, I'm going to commit to Millersville. Okay. So Thurgood, we have a guy that people knew from track and had to sort of learn him in football. And then in your case, basketball player who comes back to football – towards the end of your high school career. Uh, yeah. So, Thurgood, you said you're about 80, 85% now in terms of the health of your hamstring? Yeah, I'm almost 100% healthy, but then comes I'm probably about 70% in shape, and I'm sure I'm sure you know from, from basketball oh. the difference between healthy and in shape for sure. So I'm yeah, working yeah. to get back in shape now. <laughs> okay. Um, and do you, do you have, Thurgood, do you have any workouts lined up yet for CFL teams? Yes, I do. Uh, there's a tryout on May 7th for the Montreal Alouettes. Yes. Right. And uh, that's that's the team that I – that's my, my reach team. That's my number one choice if I could play there. Uh, but I would I would honestly play football anywhere at this point, just okay. just to know I work my way back. So. Well, well, good. Now, when you were timed in the 40, obviously as people talk about football speed versus track speed, they're really talking about is explosive speed versus long speed. So when you're running the 200, that's about maintenance of speed. You know, you're able to get to a top speed and then hold on for dear life for two, you know, until you get to 200 meters. At 100 meters, you're getting close to your peak, getting about peak speed probably between 60 and 80 meters and then holding on for the last 15, 20 meters. And then in the 40, a guy like you is still accelerating. That's what people don't realize sometimes. You know, yeah. when, Justin Gatlin, when Justin Gatlin says, well, I ran a 4.47 when I went to Tennessee's Pro Day, people are like, what do you mean? You were the – you know, fastest hundred meter guy that year. How are you running four four seven? Like that's a completely different kind of running. So, oh, yeah. so talk about your approach to running forties and what's your personal record in the forty? Uh, my PR in the forty, and I don't go by any hand time. Some people, even one of the scouts, had me hand timed 
at 437 and I with right. running on fully automatic time all the time I know that wasn't a 437 like I think guys will see that I'm a quote unquote speed guy and they'll get those itchy fingers but on an actual fully automatic uh my best is 4.44 and that's like you said it's not super fast but I am so bad at what's called the drive phase which is where you're coming out of the blocks and your head's down and you're not up into your running form yet my right. track coaches and I worked on killing my drive phase down to about 10 meters. In, in the 100-meter dash, you want to drive out 35 meters before yep. you finally pick your head up, you know. Right. And it's, you know, that's, that's the end of a 40. That's, that's a whole 40 <laughs> right there. So you don't want to right. drive the whole thing. I've been right. working on a slower, a smaller drive phase where I can fire out about five steps, pick my head up, and throw my hips under myself. And that's, that's how I've run my best 40 times, I think. Right. That's an interesting point that you're making because a lot of the times that you're hearing on people are either half electronic where the start electronic but the stop is hand-timed. Like even at the combine, that's not fully electronic. People forget that. That's half yeah. electronic. The start's electronic, but the end of it is still hand-timed at Absolutely. the combine. And at the pro day, it's 100% hand-timed. You know, it's the start is hand-timed and the end is hand-timed. So. You, you're more honest than most people. When you say you run a four four four, you know you're running a legitimate four 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 forty, and you hand timed might be mid to low four three. Yeah, exactly. And the thing is about the the fully automatic time for track, the gun makes the clock start, and then when you cross the finish line, the clock stops unofficially. But they also take a look at the finishing picture, so they literally get your chest, your center mass. They get where that finished, so it's down to the hundredth of a second. And so right. that it's a little bit more specific. And so I try to believe those times more so than I believe, even if it's hype about myself. I mean, it's nice that people are like, oh, he ran a 4-2, but, like, you got to be realistic <laughs> as well. I, I love your thought process. So, yeah, so when I tell people you ran a 4-4-4-40, you ran a 4-4-4-40 fully electronic. That's yep, with the <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So that's not like those legendary, you know, you hear those really legendary 4-2s or whatever. I don't know if anybody ever has run Fortune fully electronic. Uh, like I said, even the Chris Johnson Fortune 4 was only half electronic. Start electronic, but end was anti. So, you know, you you are legitimately obviously a very fast guy. Now, what's your PR in the 100 and the 200? Um, okay, it's, it's weird. My senior year outdoor conference, we had a really, really windy day, like illegal wind. It was like 4.0 meters per second. So mm -hmm. my PR in the 100 is 10.12 seconds. But that's illegal wind. My legal PR is uh, 10.27. So I've gone 10.27, 10.28, 10.29, 10.30, and 10.31, all with legal conditions. So I tell right. people I'm a consistent 10.3 guy that has gone faster but not necessarily legally faster. Right. Well, if you're in 10.27 in legal wind, you're a flyer. You're a blazer. Yeah. What's, your, what's, your, uh, what's, your, what's your fastest in the 200? Uh, my fastest legal in the 200 is 20.86, and believe it or not, we do this thing called peaking, where you're not running fast early in the season, but for nationals, you, you stop lifting and you just sprint, and right. so I was peaking in that race, and it was minus three meters per second headwind, so I'm oh, wow. very proud of that. With normal wind, that probably would have been about 20.2, I think, but Jeez. my legal, legal, or illegal fastest is 20.51. And that's, I mean, that was flying. I knew, I know it wasn't like that. That was definitely heavily wind aided, but uh, I'm c probably about a 21-0 consistent guy. Like week in and week out, I could run 21-0. That's like I said, that's that's flying. 
Yeah, you're you're a speed guy. And the CFL is a. I mean, you'll find out there's that's the difference. The biggest difference I would say between CFL and NFL. The speed is the same, and in some cases, slightly edged towards CFL. Like there's not a lot of quote unquote Seattle corners in the CFL. Of they, the corners are now. What's what's your height and weight now, Thurgood? Uh, right now I'm five foot eleven, one seventy eight. I'm gonna try to get myself to one eighty five. I think that's a decent playing weight. My senior year yeah. I played at one eighty two, so I right. think one eighty five is right about where I want to be. Yeah. So I think the average CFL corner is five ten and a half, one hundred eighty three. They, really? they don't they don't care as much about size as you will soon discover because, I mean, I don't know how much CFL you watch there, but you watch you should watch some CFL football. It's all about quickness, man. It's all yeah. about quickness and speed. I mean, the CFL is, remember, there's only three downs, right? So there's not a lot of, mm-hmm. you know, rock of soccer football in the CFL. A, a running play, a, like a draw play is a running play. Like, they don't have a lot of off-tackle, power G, ski stuff. No, it's, the the runs are almost all draws, and it's a passing. I mean, it's the passing. I mean, it's, yep. it's you know, like I said, it's only got three downs. You know, there's no fourth down. Third down is fourth out in the CFL. So you've really got mm-hmm. two downs to pick up the yardage. You've got a wider field, and you've got 12 guys, you know, on the side. So it's 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 action, man, and it's speed and quickness. So you've got the speed. And I don't know what your three-cone or short shuttle is, but I'm assuming you're pretty quick as well. Have you have you ever been timed as a three, uh, three-cone yeah, or short shuttle? Yeah, I've so never been timed automatically in those because that's just the timing no system one, would be weird. No, nobody times anybody automatically in those. So there's, yeah, there's yeah, no automatic time in those. Last year, I don't remember exactly what my time was because I was literally begging um, scouts to tell me the times because they were kind of actually being pretty secretive about everyone's times at that uh, pro day. That. Uh, yeah. But it was in the middle, like if you take all the corners at the combine and take the mean, it was mm-hmm. right around that mean. So it was right about in the middle of the pack for the combine. So I'm not mm-hmm. even sure what that is, to be honest. Because okay. I don't really pay attention to combine drills because the only time you do them is at the combine. I'm always when I'm lifting, I'm focused more on form and stuff like that. So right. I don't really set too many goals as as far as just go as fast as you can, I guess. Sure. Well the only thing I would say that matters is it helps for a guy especially for a guy like you, where people don't respect the tape as much as they should, you need good times and everything. <laughs> I mean, just to be yeah. perfectly honest with you. I've been around, you know, guys in your situation for many years and numbers are everything for a guy coming from a small school. And is it fair? Is it right? No, but they don't. And that's your only form of proof. You only are what you just ran, you know, right. I'm not my film. If I was my film, they would, you know, they wouldn't even be looking because they're like, you didn't play against, against Oregon. You didn't play against, you know, (laughs) these big teams, you played against Platteville and stuff. So I got to prove it each day. Right. And that's like I said, fair or unfair. That is the way it is when you're a small school guy. Uh, you need to blow someone's mind with numbers so that they'll at least pay attention to something else. So now they'll look at you as an athlete. Now they'll give you a chance to work out. Now they'll let you. But I hear so many, I don't want to say horror stories, but where a guy comes from a small school and they don't let him even work out, even though they said they would at a pro day, or they let him do, as as you just said, Rasheed, they let you do 240s. And then did you get a T-shirt or was that it? You just went home? No, that was that was just, that was just it. Yeah, we just well, we could stay there and like watch, but we basically got sent home afterwards. Oh, that's cruel. Jeez. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, when I that, when I, I went to the Dream Bowl in Virginia, I actually like yep. worked out in front of um 
some scouts like during practice and stuff like that. And uh, the Jets had pulled me aside for a little bit, and I talked to them down there. So that was a chance where I got to actually like work out in front of scouts. And um, some CFL teams contacted me too down there. So I mean, that's where I got my chance to actually like work out, and they see me actually playing the game too. So right, nice. But my hometown, Virginia Beach, Virginia, where the Virginia yeah, Bowl Virginia is held. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so, how did you? How did the Dream Bowl find you, or how did you find the Dream Bowl? How did the, How did you find out about that, or how did they find out about you, Rashid? Uh, well, um, some I think it was on Facebook. Uh, some uh, one of the scouts, I guess, for the Dream Bowl, he had a message me one day. Like, I've been watching it. I, I had posted my like film, and I guess my stats like to Facebook, like every game and stuff like that. And he had messaged me like, uh, "I want you to be a part of the Dream Bowl. Like, can you send me some more?" So I actually, I sent him an actual highlight tape at the end of the year. And he sent me an invitation. That's how we linked up, and I just went, I went down there. Okay. And you said the Jets pulled you aside? Yeah, the Jets pulled me aside down there. I just talked to him for maybe about, like, 25 minutes, filled out, like, one of those, like, informational packets. Mm-hmm. They just asked him, like, a lot of questions and stuff like that, like, how did I start? Basically the same questions you just asked me, like, how did <laughs> I start playing football? Right. <laughs> like that. Yeah, well, scouts and people around the evaluation always want to know the same kinds of things about you. Why do you play football? How do you play football? And how much better can you get? That's really, if you want to simplify scouting to the simplest bare bones form, that's all it is. Yep. Why does this guy play football? How does that play football? And how much better can he get at playing football? Bingo, yeah. scouting in three, in three, in three things, three that's steps. Bare bones of it. <laughs> that's it. I mean, there's lots more that we can attach to scouting. That's really all it is, Rasheed and Thurgood. Why does this guy play football? How does he play football? And how much better can he get? And see, I was trying – so you know how they market Division Three as being, oh, academics first and all that stuff. I'm trying to tell these scouts, like, I volunteer here and here. I get this good of a GPA. And they're like, I don't give a crap about any of that stuff. And here here I'm thinking I'm going to, like, look like a really good all-around dude. And they're they're just like, how fast are you, you know? And that's that's the nature of the game. Hello? 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 I think I fell off the line a little bit. Hello? Um, this, this is Thurgood. I can't hear, uh, yeah, I can't hear them either. Yeah, oh, hey, this is, this, this, yeah, this is she, yeah. 
So uh, he, so after we said that thing, he went away. I think I don't. Yeah, I, I think I, I think connected. he. Yeah, I think I think he just muted. It says it was muted. I guess I don't know what happened. No, you're fine. You're fine. Oh, okay. Sorry about that. I was checking on one of our other guests uh, who should be joining us momentarily. Um, so I just wanted to, to first of all, I want to last few questions for Thurgood, and then we'll uh, proceed for, further with Rashid. So. At this point, Thoroughgood, you're trying to put on about five more pounds of muscle, it sounds right. like. Uh, get get back into shape. Uh, not just be healthy, as you said, but actually get back into shape. I think the CFL is almost an ideal situation for you. And I think like a guy like Delvin Bro, if you go up there and just flat out kill it in the CFL, which I think you could, uh, with your – you are what they look for in the CFL. People might say, oh, he's a nickel, he's a small school guy, whatever, down here in the lower 48. And so you're going to have to go up there and put up great tape. But I think you will. I could easily see you going up there, uh, maybe taking a year to really acclimate because it's a slightly different sport. If you've never seen it, I recommend you start watching CFL football. Oh, yeah. Uh, just... I've watched a couple games, and the Montreal coaches actually sent me some game film to watch. Oh, good. And they said I should look on covering the slot back, which is the guy that can run up mm-hmm. from like 15 yards. Mm-hmm. Kind of crazy. Yes, he gets a nice running start at you. So that, that's where your speed will really come in handy uh, because that guy is at the snap of the ball. He's close to top speed. Uh, while you're you know, obviously getting a standing start, he's got to get a flying start. Which so, means no you know, press in that situation. Not going to be no able to use your hands. <laughs> no, sir. Um, your feet will have to get really good because your hands are basically neutered if you're covering the slot back. So, yes, um, it's good that you know how to use your hands. And obviously when you get back playing, you know, down here in America, you'll be back able to use that again. But, yeah, if you're coming slot, the slot back up there, your feet and hips, that's it. Mm-hmm. So people, there'll be no questions about your feet and hips if you're successful in doing that in the CFL. But I could see you after a couple of years up there, uh, some of the teams that do a good job of scouting CFL guys, like the Saints, like the Dolphins, and a few others who actually do a good job of of looking at CFL guys. I could see you getting an invitation to come down to somebody's camp uh, and show your wares, finally, you know, for real, in a uh, NFL workout situation. I think people will be not just pleasantly surprised, but pleasantly shocked. Like, how do we, where, where's that been? You know? <laughs> that's <laughs> wow. kind of been my whole career, so it means a lot to hear you say that. Thank you so much. Well, I would urge people to go back and look at your tape. Particularly, you mentioned the Eric Kumarow game. That's actually one of the games that I think was that your junior year. Uh, yes, it was. Yep. Okay, that was the game that, and I've seen the article. And there's loads of guys, you know, like you said, they're track guys who happen to play a little football on the side, and good for them, you know. But you were one of the legitimate football players on that list, and so I started looking at it. your tape. wasn't the easiest to find, but luckily I have a spy in your conference. And, uh, yes, oh, yes. The good news about being an old guy and being around for a long time is some of the guys that I once scouted are now coaches. Oh, nice. You got a guy in the WIAC. You got a guy all over the place. I got got a few guys. Yeah, I got a few guys. So um, I was like, hey, can you get me a full game on this kid? And he was like, yeah, I can, because they had, they had, um, well, long story short, everyone had been worried about Kumaro for, you know, obvious reasons. So you could get, tape on Kumaro, and they had tape on Kumaro playing playing you guys. So I watch it, and it's like, okay, you know, this guy's competing. I mean, that's the thing people talk about. 
I mean, Kumro is supposed to be this unstoppable killing machine in your conference, and, you know, he put up some stupid numbers against some people. Ridiculous. Um, yeah. Yes, like, like you would think you're reading it wrong, like, this can't be one day. Yeah, so, so it's like, how do you get 240 what? Three touchdowns. Yeah, it doesn't even make sense, does it? <laughs> right, right. Like, that, how is that possible? <laughs> so, so to see the, the game you had against him, and, yeah, you didn't shut it out, but you, you gave him – probably one of his two or three toughest days in the office of his entire football career. And I was like, okay, okay. Yeah, this guy's a, a player. So I think I'm going to get beat for a score, I think he got a touchdown in that game, but he only caught like three passes. And if I'm going to give up three passes, yep. then Kumro's a good dude to give him up to, you know. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think he had three balls in what, 60-something yards maybe? Yeah, <laughs> yep, something like that. Okay. Yeah, yeah. But it wasn't, it wasn't a normal Kumro game, I'll put it that way. It wasn't one of those freak show you know, is there anybody, is it, will no one challenge this beast kind of thing? You know, usually it's, oh, you know, embarrassing. And this was not an embarrassing game. I mean, you you know, if you, if you can do that against him, and that's a guy who's legitimately an NFL prospect, you're going to hold up just fine. I mean, no offense to the CFL receivers, because there's some, you'll see what I'm talking about. There's some guys up there. You'll see two or three. S.J. Green's the guy I'm watching the most. He looks like a dude to beat in that CFL. There you go. Good. Keep watching that tape. Um, there's there's a few guys up there who who are very quick and very polished, great route runners. Um, there's a kid from Beneath State that I got to know pretty well who's up there now too. Uh, Deontay, um, Deontay Spencer. There we go. Deontay Spencer. He's another one of those little slot dudes who's really really fast and very very quick. And he's going to be a good test for you as well. But yeah, this is what I'm talking about. Lots of very quick fast guys. That's the whole game. The whole game is about spacing and speed and quickness. If you can survive that, and I think you will, some NFL team, because, you know, that's who, who's gashing people nowadays, right? The, the Antonio Brown. I yeah. mean, Julio Jones is having, you know, a nice career, too. Don't get me wrong. But, but, the, but who's, who are the guys that are driving you nuts nowadays? It's the Antonio Browns of the world. It's the uh, Odell Beckham Juniors of the world, the guys that people can't stay with. You know, I mean, there's still places for devs in this world, don't get me wrong, where these guys just, you know, you just basically knock the defensive back around all day long. That's, yeah. That guy, that guy's a problem too. But the guy that's keeping you up at night nowadays is Olo Beckham Jr. Is Antonio Brown. The guy you's like, I can't. No one can stay with him. Like, I put four guys on him. He gets away from all four. It doesn't matter. There's no number of guys that can put on this guy to stop him. That's um, the worst part. Is it's a simple problem. Complex problems, you can do all sorts of complex solutions. But a simple problem, <laughs> it's, it's always tough. Very well put. I, you're going to be a really good coach one day. Uh, I hope this. so. I hope so. I'm, I, I, that's, I'm almost looking forward to that more than playing. I mean, obviously, you got to love playing, but when I'm a coach, oh, I can't wait to get my hands on kids like me, you know. Just, <laughs> uh, I can't wait. And you, one day you'll be one of my spies, funneling, funneling the information about players. So look, I look forward to that. <laughs> can't wait. Um, Sergio, tell people where they can find out more about you. Uh, do you have a is there a huddle? I mean, what is it? If people want to find out more about you, where would they go? What would they do? Well, I had a huddle, but when our coaching staff got fired, uh, the new athletic director accidentally deleted all the film from the past two years. So ah. all we have are physical copies now. I'm going to try to get that back up. Um, the best person to contact would probably be John Perla, who is still my agent, even though things have been slow as of late. Um, I, I have a phone number for him, but I, I, it might be better just to... No, no, no. Just direct message to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, would, I would probably say just Google Thurgood Dennis and read some, read some articles, maybe look some stuff up, maybe get a little, little feel for me. I did a few other interviews with nothing, nothing like, like this, but 
a few other interviews with some on-campus people, and that might be a good way to get a sense of, like, my personality, sort of sort of who okay. I am as a person and a player. Well, I'm so impressed, and I've, yeah. I've enjoyed my conversation with you. Oh, well, thank you. Ditto. So I look forward to you having, you know, a nice little run in the CFL coming down, having a nice little run down here probably as a as – a, they'll probably look at you as a slot guy, though I think you can play outside, but, you know, that's neither here nor there. They don't care what I think. But I, I don't think forget get... special teams. I want to be on oh. kickoff. Oh, oh my god! I want to be on kickoff. If Ooh. you if you show people that you can be a beast in kickoff returns and kickoff coverage, there'll be a place for you. That really? will that will. Oh, okay. This is my last little piece of advice to you. Okay. Manage to figure out four units you can be on on special teams. If you can be a really good four unit special teams guy, there will be a job for you in the NFL. I promise. It may not be for five years, but for at least two or three, if you're a great special teams player, there's a – if you aren't aware of uh, Matthew Slater, right? Matthew Slater, USC uh, – USC, it's UCLA, good Lord. Uh, UCLA wide receiver. Now, he's never played, I think, a down of wide receiver in the NFL, but he's made uh, about three Pro Bowls now as a special teams guy. If you want to get Bill Belichick's eyes to light up, which I know sounds like um, like an oxymoron or something. But, yeah, Mission Impossible. <laughs> but, but ask him about Matthew Slater. Like, don't ask him about Tom Brady, man. Brady, love him. Like, you know, don't ask him about, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, Jamie Collins. But you want to get him to, like, all, get all excited and giddy. Ask him about Matthew Slater. I yeah. kid you not. And watch Belichick light up. Oh, you know, we can't do such and such without him. He's allowed us to do this, and he's the core of our blah, blah, blah. And he's, I mean, he's a, first of all, he's an old special teams coach himself. That's one reason he gets so excited. But he loves Matthew Slater. That might be his favorite Patriot. I'm not kidding when I say that. Wow. That literally might be Belichick's favorite Patriot. Now, because you don't, you don't get a chance to see that because no one talks about Matthew Slater, but that's the guy that he, he hearts Matthew Slater. Wow. That's awesome. That's great advice, too. Real quick anecdote as far as that goes. One of my players that I look up to that I was going to say if you asked that was Jared Bush from the Packers. Because oh. he, at times, people would be like, oh, he's a liability on defense. He re-signed with the team four times because of how explosive and how much effort he gave on special teams. Mm-hmm. And for me, Rashid, I'm sure your team was probably better than mine my senior year. We were 1-9, and nine, so we had, oh. had some struggles. But one of the things that kept me going was special teams. A lot of the starters – were a little bit – I love my teammates, but a lot of them were like, screw this, I'm, I'm done. And I was, like, volunteering for every special team I could because I loved to play, and I was like, I get 100 plays each Saturday. I've got 10 Saturdays left. Like, of course I'm going to play as much as I can. So yeah. this the whole – definitely fits in with what you're telling me right now. Oh, my God. Thurgood, that's a T-shirt. What you just said, <laughs> that's a T-shirt. Like, they should be – when freshmen come onto your campus, they should have that T-shirt that says, I've got 100 plays on Saturday. I've got 10 Saturdays left. Of course I want to play. Yeah, why, <laughs> why not? I'm not going to sit and be like, I'm only a starter. Like, that's less plays of football you get to play in your life. You only get a couple of these, you know? <laughs> God, Thurgood, I love your attitude. I wish I could bottle it. If, if I'm not going to name any names, but there's some guys who are going to go in the first round of this draft who don't have one-tenth of that in terms of just pure love of the game. I wish everybody felt that way. Oh, man, I'm, you can't see it, but I'm blushing. That's, that's my, I got a face for radio, and I'm <laughs> blushing right now. So thank you so much for saying that. <laughs> oh, so good. Oh, I'm so excited about what the next phase holds for you. I think, like I said, CFL is a perfect place for you to start your career because it will highlight your strengths, 
and it'll force you to work on your weaknesses. You will learn so much about past concepts. Not that you don't know now. You're a bright guy, but you, whew, I mean, it is all footballs in the air all the time, short, medium, long. That's, that's what it is. Like, it's, it's all about you learning to, to deal with combinations and all kinds of wild ideas in the passing concepts. Wow. I can't wait. The wider field, longer field, deeper end zones is the thing that trips me out because usually in the, in the American game, the passing game has to – it closes up once you're inside, like, the 10-yard line. But there, you could throw a 20-yard fade from the one-yard line in the CFL if you wanted. That's, that's one big change that I'm looking forward to, I think. So, Thurgood, I wish you all the best. You're, you're, you're a joy and a privilege. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you for having me on today. It was, uh, it was a pleasure. Um, please, would you – I hope you got the email. If you could respond to the questions I sent, uh, I'll be doing an article on you in the next uh, probably about 10 days or so. Okay, sure thing. I've got my answers written out. I'll type them up and send them your way. Perfect, perfect, perfect. Thank you so much. Thanks, Good Julia. Luck, Good luck with everything, Rashid. You too. Good luck. Bye. Uh, that was Thurgood Dennis, one of my favorite uh, Division Three players of the last couple of years, a guy that unfortunately had a very poorly timed injury just as things were beginning to happen for him previously. But he's about to get a second bite at the apple. I think he's going to have a, a nice little run in the CFL, and then I hope he gets a chance to, to play down a little closer to home here in, in America. So now, Rasheed, it's all about you. Um, Where were you on the depth chart when you first got to Millersville? When I first got to Millersville, I might have been like fourth because we had like a lot of older guys, a couple of seniors. So my first year, I actually registered with the program. So Mm -hmm. I just just left to travel with the guys early. I didn't play at all. They asked me that I want to play special teams, but one coach said, no, he's not ready. Just let him get in the weight room. So my redshirt freshman year, um, I sat maybe the first two games and we were playing Westchester and I got in around like the second quarter and my first hit was a big hit. Like we me and a guy both collided and we both just dropped to the ground. And after that, like I I've been starting since then. It was a couple games where I did maybe didn't start because they wanted to play like a senior, but ever since then I started. So ever since my redshirt freshman year, I'm like the third game there. Okay. Okay, great. And I'm gonna open it up. Montel, do you have any questions for us? Or maybe we've lost Montel. Montel, you still with us? Yeah, perhaps not. Then I will proceed. Tell me about the um, the system you guys run there. Uh, we ran a 3-4 under uh, Ralph Clark as we're uh, up as a strong safety. Well, I played strong and free safety. I played strong safety, free safety, rover. I played in the box a lot. We blitz. I played a lot of man. We played a lot of cover three. So we we switched it up a lot. Where we just he showed like a lot of different things. He just wanted to. He didn't want to. He didn't want the offense to dictate us. We dictated what the offense did. So we tried to break the pressure before they brought the pressure to us. Hello. I like that. Hello. I was saying I like that uh, aggressive approach. Yeah. I like the uh, the aggressive approach in terms of you know getting there, getting to them before they can get to you. Yeah, that's his, that was his motto. Yeah.
Hello? And in terms of your responsibilities, you said you played some both some free and some strong. What were you usually assigned to do? Were you a guy who was like a an alley guy? Did you come down and and support a lot against the run? Uh, did you also do like deep pass, deep middle, deep third? Yes, and well, in this system, uh, the safeties controlled the defense, so we called the plays. We made the checks for everyone, so we had to know what everyone did. And I played deep middle of the field. Um, Played the alley, came out in the box. I blitzed off the edge. I did everything mostly. He used me in a lot of different type of ways, like sort of like Teron Matthews at LSU. Ooh. Um, his his years there, like he kind of used me like that. It's like a hybrid safety. Like, that's one game he wanted to man me up and play man. I had to go play man that game. So that's how it was. I just had to adjust oh. to what he wanted me to do that game. And I kind of I kind of liked doing that because I, I I was some games it was I gotta go tackle today, and some games it was. Okay, I gotta go man this guy up today. So it helped me out with my my game. Okay, that's interesting. Um, so Tyron Matthew, that's not a bad a bad guy to mention. Who are some of your favorite guys to watch? Who are some of your favorite players in the league? My favorite defensive guys in the NFL right now are guys Cam Chancellor. Like his his oh. game is. I, I try to model my game after his. Like oh. huge guy, heavy hitter. <laughs> oh. he's, he's a great player. I love him, man. And uh, so, yeah. you know Tony Jefferson that played for the Cardinals. Yeah, uh, he plays in the box plays, like that. He plays some linebacker. He plays some yeah. co- some slot corner. Yeah. He plays. Yeah, he, he does, does everything. everything. Yeah, I love that. And of course, Tyron Matthews. He's like the ultimate worker, workhorse. That's going to stop him. That's going to yeah. Yeah, if you love. Oh, if you love safeties, Arizona's got nothing but great safeties. They have Deion Buchanan who plays hybrid linebacker. Tony Jefferson, Tyron Matthew, uh, Rashad uh, Jones. Uh, there's so few really great safeties in the league right now, but they got so many there. And then as you mentioned, yeah. Chancellor, my God, who doesn't love Cam Chancellor? I remember that guy, but I'm from Virginia. I remember when he was uh, back at Virginia Tech, handed out headaches every week. Oh, my God. Yeah, I watched some of his highlights <laughs> on YouTube. I was like, yo, this is crazy. <laughs> Taking people's heads off. Yeah. <laughs> so. I'm going to ask you this. I mean, I played safety, though not anywhere as well as you play safety. Are you a guy that prefers to, like, lay a dude out so that he doesn't even want to, you know, come back across the middle anymore, or do you prefer to get an interception? Oh, man. I'm trying to lay him out so he doesn't come back. It's tough. I I like getting the ball interceptions, but I want to lay the guy out like, you know, like, you can't come back here no more. Like, you're not going to catch this game. If I just pick it off, maybe he thinks he might get another catch. But if I hit him, he's not coming back across it no more. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. I'm with you. I'm with you. <laughs> I'm with you. <laughs> um, if if you were sending me to watch a particular tape, like the if if somebody if you wanted somebody to, to know who you were as a player, what kind of player you were, what tape would you tell them to watch? Which tape do you think is the one that would? If I'm trying to sell you to my boss, to my to a general manager, and I'm a scout, what tape should I should I send them to? I'll probably pick like the some of the best teams we played. I would go get the East Strasburg tape 
we played against a guy, Matt Schultz. Yes, no. We played against Snars and Schultz. Yeah. Two great, the greatest combination in Division Two football, I think. Yes, uh, they are. They're crazy. I agree with they're crazy. You. I would get the tape from them. Um, I would get the tape against Bloomberg, who's a heavy run team. E.U. Strasburg is a heavy pass team, and Bloomberg would be like a heavy run team. I would get the film from them. And, of course, Westchester, where they're, they're always at the top of our league. They have a guy named um, Tim Brown, who's a he's, a he's a tight end, who's like a high draft. Well, he should be a six-round draft pick somewhere around there. So I'll probably get those three games and just show them, see if they like me about those games. Okay. I would agree. Um, I've had the – I'm starting to get uh, Matt on the show. I've had John on the show, and as you said, those guys, they're like – Pennington and Moss when, when they were together at Marshall. I yeah, mean, they're, they're, they're crazy. <laughs> they're, they're, that was playing against me and Matt came in together, actually. So every, oh. me, Matt, and John, me, Matt, and John came in together. So every year I had to see them. I love them on tape. Tell me what made them so good in your mind. I think uh, probably the chemistry off the field. They probably hang together so much. Mm-hmm. Video games, go get food together, just them hanging around, throwing passes. Double dating. Dating sisters, that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, because Matt could look from the – Matt could not even be looking at John, and John just knows what to do. He'll go get us. It's just crazy. And we play, like, good defense against him. He was just going to get the ball a lot of the time. Man, he's a great athlete. Great athlete. Yeah, I, I, I think he's the best. Division two receiver in the country, and I think he's one of the top ten receivers, regardless of level in the country. Yeah, John. Yeah, yeah. It's crazy because he's coming from ASU, so he might not get the same recognition as the big time receivers. That's what I, I wish would be different for us because the the PSAC is a real good league. We have some good players in this. People mm-hmm. call it like the SEC of Division two. I just wish we got a little bit more recognition for the things we did because we we have some nice ballers in the PSAC. Yeah, you named two great guys. Name a, who are some of the other best players you've ever played with or against in your college career? Uh, I played against um, Shabazz. I didn't. He played defense at um. He played defense at Westchester, but um, his name was Aha Shabazz. He played corner for Westchester. He got a trial with the. He's actually he might be with the Steelers right now, but yeah, he he worked out with the Buccaneers. Um, he played in the East West Giant game last year. Yeah, he was he was a good corner. Um, Sheldon Mayer, he played for the he played for um Shippensburg. He was a receiver. He graduated this year. He was like um he's like a Darren Sports kind of guy. Um, my freshman year, I seen Rontez Miles play at Cal U. That was amazing. He was like Cam Chancellor in the NFL. He was a he was a safety for Cal U. Who he played for the Jets right now. He was a good player. That I seen. It was a lot of great players, man. That I okay. ran through my my years at uh, PSAC. I, I agree. Um, my old boss, when I was a graduate assistant at uh, University of Illinois, was the great linebacker and coach, and he was our defensive coordinator, a guy named Lou Tepper, who went later to the PSAC and was a very successful coach in that conference. That You mentioned Cal PA. So, yeah, I'm familiar with uh, – it's one of my favorite conferences. And I'm not just talking about D2. It's one of my favorite conferences, period, because yeah. it's so competitive. <laughs> I mean, yeah, every- Every week that wins a good game. Right. A team that wins two games might have won one of those games against the team that won the conference. Exactly. <laughs> That's so true. Uh, so I feel like a, a PSAC team could go, not to talk trash on any other D2 school uh, league, but if, a P, if PSAC schools would go to any Division two league, 
I feel like we would go like win their league, like be probably on the field somewhere. <laughs> so um, I'm not gonna go quite that far, but I'm gonna say I think top to bottom, it is the best conference in Division Two. I will say that much. I think the Peacock yeah. is great at the top. Uh, okay, so let's move you forward. Um, you said, uh, you know, a little about your pro day experience. It wasn't ideal, but you did. How did you get in? I mean, that's always a big challenge for, for small school guys. How did you even get into the pro day? Yeah, um, my agent, um, Richard uh, Lardy, he's from. He's actually from VA. So um, I've been uh, dealing with him. He uh, got me a, shot, a chance to get in there, and I just filled out the paperwork and got in there. He's working, trying to work some deals for me. I actually talked to him the other day about some situations that he's trying to do for me. So we're just trying to, like, find some situations, and when I get the chance, I just got to prove that I, I belong. Okay. Um, now, has any team ever asked you to work out or, or look at you as a, a will linebacker, or is everybody looking at you as a safety? Uh, mostly safety. I never got, like, asked to be a linebacker because nah, not, not yet. But when I weighed in, I, I, I thought about that. Because I'm weighing in at like five eleven, two seventeen. So some teams, I was wondering if some teams might want me to get a little bigger and actually play linebacker, but I haven't got that, gotten it yet. Okay, I could see you doing it. And once again, as we just talked about with Thurgood, I can't stress enough special teams. When you look at the way teams are put together, the fifty-three man roster, mm-hmm. when they cut down from you know like a hundred and some odd guys they bring in to camp to ninety once they break camp, right? And then they go into, you know, actual practices, OTAs, things like that. They go down to 90. Then they go from 90 to 75. Yeah. And the first first few cuts are guys that probably are borderline players. They may not be good enough. When you cut from 75 down to 53, you're cutting guys that play. Yeah. All the guys who are involved, there's no room. There's no room for them. But one of the biggest things, those last few guys on the 53-man roster, those last five, six guys, are almost always guys that the special teams coach says, oh, I need that guy. I can't, can't cut him. He's on four units. He's on five yeah. units. Guy's on PAT block. He's on uh, kickoff and punt coverage. He's a personal punt protector on our punt protection. He's, so I can't cut him. You know, I need him because you take three guys to replace him, so you can't cut him. So yeah. got to be a great special teams player, especially if you're a small school guy. I cannot recommend yeah. him. And it's crazy at Millersville. I, I played at almost every down on defense. I would go play kickoff, punt, punt return. I even played kick return. I was a, a front line guy. So I love playing special teams. Any, any kick I get on the field, I'll play any position. Excellent. Excellent. So the last question I have for you is about legacy. When people look back, five, 10, 15 years, they're looking at the tape, they're looking at your records and what you did. What do you want your legacy to be at Millersville? What do people remember about you as a player? Um, I just want them to remember that I was a hard worker that I never gave up because through, through my years at Millersville, we had like some rough stretches where we weren't winning games. We had a coach switch. And a lot of kids, like a lot of kids that came in with my class, they gave up, they quit. And I just want people to remember that. That Rasheed Johnson, he stuck with it. He didn't give up on the Millsville program. Even though I'm in the record books, actually, I'm like the fifth tackler all time. Mm-hmm. With uh, and uh, solo tackles, I'm like sixth all time. So I had a good career here. It's just that really doesn't matter to me. I want them to remember that I didn't quit. That he didn't give up. This guy, he stuck with it. And that's what I try to tell the young guys to come in. Like no matter how tough it gets, just stick with it. Cause look how look what happened to me. Yeah, you had a heck of a career, and you are. You're in the top. Five, I think in two things. I think both in total tackles and tackles for loss, if memory serves yeah. correctly. Yeah, so, well, solo, tackle, total tackles and, to, and total solo tackles. 
Yeah, that's what it is. Right, total and solo. Right, exactly. Um, you're attacking machine, and there's a place for you. And that place, I think, most likely is special teams. You might never be an NFL starter, but yeah. I guarantee you, with your toughness and instincts and love for the game, if you are willing to throw your body around like I've seen you do it so far, <laughs> somebody's special teams coach would be like, no, I need that kid. i got to keep Rasheed? No, you can't cut him. I've got him on four units. Yeah. I would love that, man. Thanks. Thanks. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, if people wanted to learn more about you or find out more about you, where would they find information? Is there a place you've got tape up, or where would I learn more about you? Um, on YouTube, I actually have a highlight tape up, uh, Rasheed, uh, Smack Johnson, that's the nickname I got here at Millersville from uh, tackling guys. Um, right. You can Google, Google me, Rasheed Johnson, Millersville. I have a lot, a lot of interviews, a lot of articles that I did with the school, um, like NFL Blitz guys, some um, sports hub guys. So you can just Google me, find a lot of more information about me. Perfect. Go to my Millersville Athletics page. Perfect. Um, I don't know if I emailed you the questions already, but if not, uh, please DM me your your email address, and I will send you an email of all the some of the questions I, I, we asked today. Okay. I actually um, sent you a, sent you some of the answers back. I actually sent oh, you the perfect. answers back already. Perfect. Okay. Well, that's then I'll be your article will be up pretty soon then. Uh, okay. Probably this Monday, maybe the latest is Tuesday. You can look for that on um, Fan IQ, and I'm running a whole series that I call my Blue Light Specials, guys. That'll be either drafted in the last two rounds or guys that might be undrafted free agents, but I think will be great bargains in the NFL for somebody, somebody's lucky team. Uh, so Rashid, a.k.a. Smack, the Smack Master himself, <laughs> <laughs> it has been a real honor, a privilege, and a pleasure having you on today. Thanks, Mr. Garrett. Thanks. Oh, certainly, certainly. And, and please thank uh, Mr. Lardy, your, uh, your agent as well, for helping to get everything together. It has been great getting a chance to meet you. I think you're going to have a, a nice little run. It's going to be hard because you have to, you know, Right. You have a lot of a lot of work ahead of you, but I think you're going to get it done. Yes, so congratulations. Definitely. Thank you. Okay? Certainly my pleasure. Uh, I want to thank you once again, and uh, it was a pleasure having you. Of course, uh, Mr. Dennis on as well. I want to thank Montel Hardy for joining us, and we'll do this all again in one week. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. <laughs> 